This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, the Stephen King podcast presented by Consequence of Sound. I'm your host today, Michael Trashmouth Rothman, editor-in-chief and president of Consequence of Sound, and that's not really quite true. I'm not just the host. I'm uh, just in the intro here. We're continuing from last week's episode in which we delved into the history, the hook, and the structure and format of 1986's It. Now, are you ready to go back to the Barons? Waiting for you are losers Mel Castle, Dan Caffrey, and Mackenzie Gerber, in addition to myself. So let's get in that gray water. Let's get all gross and grimy, much to the chagrin of Eddie Kasprak, and talk about those heroes and villains, and step into the cemetery, and play with that word processor of the gods, and even have ourselves a little bit of pound cake. Now, for reference, we are going to be talking about Part 1, The Shadow Before, which includes After the Flood, 1957. After the Festival, 1984. Six Phone Calls, 1985. And Dairy, The First Interlude, featuring the writings of Mike Hanlon. Now, are you ready? I think you are. That's why we're going to go right into Heroes and Villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, Vassal! All right. Well, this is only the first part of many parts of this book. We do get a lot of heroes and villains. And I think it might make sense to start with our first little hero, little Georgie Denborough. Oh, little George. Oh, God. What happens to George? Um, he's <laughs> killed really horribly. Yeah. Did I was you not read so. it? Oh, I did read it. I read it. Did and, it get uh, too scary? It got a little scary because, you know, I used to run around in a rain slicker in those stormy days of South Florida. Uh, although we didn't really have too many, like, sewage drains that yeah. looked like... And we didn't ones. have a lot of it's either. And we didn't have a lot of it's. <laughs> uh, we did have a lot of weird, crazy people running around South Florida. Sure, we had a lot of South alligators. Florida. We had a lot of alligators. Maybe it was it. Uh, either way, <laughs> what, what do we know from George here in this section? We know he loves boats. And we he's know his, a real, we love his brother. You know, he's a real he loves jerk. boats and Bill. Yeah. <laughs> boats and Bill. That could be our new section. Yeah, he's a real he's a real jerk and a real yeah. chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love George. He's a true blue little brother. It's interesting, honestly. I feel like it's kind of an interesting relationship between the two of them because 
I don't think you get a lot of um, older brothers really caring about their younger siblings in stories. I feel like usually it's like they're being a bully to them or something. You don't get, but, and, and then even in Kings, again, with the body, you know, there's like this, this kind of like big brotherish thing. It's like what you want a big brother to be, I feel. Uh, and obviously they tease each other and they joke and they laugh and Bill still gives them a hard time. And, you know, uh, but I, I think it's an interesting relationship and it, it obviously needs to be the relationship it is in order for this story to work as we continue with Bill and his journey. But um, And it's, it's also incredibly important that Georgie be innocent and establish the tone for the story, which is that anyone can die horribly. Um, A young child who just loves his brother is out playing. He's really young. I mean, he's like, he's six. Yeah. And he's really Um, trusting. mm -hmm. And I think that's huge with his first encounter because even though this thing is in the sewer, it's a clown. And like Mel was saying earlier, you know, here's this thing that essentially is not supposed to be scary. And, and a lot and the kids actually love, or used to, <laughs> I feel like now it's, I don't know how clowns even exist, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't either, but yeah, he's this innocent little guy uh, out there with that paraffin coated boat. <laughs> he does. And, uh, he does tease a, a certain other character that is mentioned many times uh, throughout this book, including I, by Mike. You know, I, I, are you talking about what I'm, I'm talking, talking about, about a little uh, Ninja Turtle? By the, uh, <laughs> so I have a section um, that we, we started during the Dark Tower books called Things We Glean Along the Beam. And so Ooh. if we could hold our turtle discussions to, to that uh, uh, section, that would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be fine. I just, I just but think yes, you're right. He is introduced. The, the, he so is Georgie, a, he's a, here's a hero. He, he has this nagging feeling. <laughs> we don't know. Feeling. We don't know. He, he uh, he 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 definitely uh, is is definitely brought up in this section for sure. Yeah, because it's through a, a can of um, turtle wax. Turtle wax, and he's like, yeah. and it's and he writes on page eight. For some reason, this can struck him, and he spent nearly thirty seconds looking at the turtle on the lid with a kind of hypnotic wonder. Then he tossed it back, and here it was at last—a square box with the word "golf" on it, which is you know what he had to get for to make that nefarious boat. And I think it's interesting to, to to bring this up now, even though I said to put it off. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's interesting to bring up now, though, as because George is really only in this section of the, of yeah, the story. That's it. And I think that it's very the interesting. The real Georgie. Yeah, yeah, the real Georgie. And I think that it's it's very interesting that G- even Georgie senses the presence mm-hmm. of the turtle, mm-hmm. which we'll obviously get into well, I think heavily as we continue the reading the book. But. Well, I think that's, it's, it's supposed to show that maybe kids are the the most like um uh hypersensitive to this yeah, oh absolutely receptive. absolutely mm-hmm. and i think it also establishes i mean there's a there's that hugely relatable section about the seller i feel like as lovers of horror but also just as people who were once children i mean don't you remember that sort of thing i mean it oh, still yeah. happens to me like i don't like night, going to the cellar if you look at a closet or something you're like what if what if there was a guy in there? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my laundry room has weird corridors and things that shouldn't be there. Uh, it's really quite terrifying. <laughs> I'll have to take a, take a little video of it. Video yeah. tour. I, I think George is just a perfect uh, uh, archetype to start this story off. Uh, because, yeah, like, I mean, it really is the beginning of fear. We see where mm-hmm. all this fear comes from, where our sort of anxieties uh, are born out of almost the imagination. And what if the imagination happens to be stemmed or rooted 
in some sort of reality something what if those fears are warranted and aren't just these things that we should kind of cast aside as just the imagination and in this case it I mean, if Georgie would have listened to his instincts, uh, Georgie would uh, have an arm and he'd still be walking around. Are you saying that it's Georgie's fault? What a fault? dope. <laughs> what an idiot, right? You're saying that it's he, it's his fault? It is his fault. And I'm blaming everything on Georgie Dembro <laughs> because he had a love for boats and he had a love for running in the rain. And, and as, as far as I'm concerned, um, I think our parents didn't want me to run around in the rain, you know? But, you know, he has a rain slicker on. He's got a rain slicker on, but, yeah. you know. He's got galoshes. He's got galoshes. He's got a rain slicker on, but give me a fucking break. He's Stay playing, indoors. He's playing with a paper boat. Read a book. On the side of the street. What, what, read what, a what's, the, what's the ish? I think if you would have stayed inside and read a book, we, we wouldn't, this, this wouldn't have happened. And Pennywise would just be like, how the hell am I going to get this kid? Can we also, now that we're talking about Georgie, briefly talk about that strange campaign that's out there about that what if Georgie lived? Do you, do you guys see this? No, what is this? There's like mm-hmm. this strange uh, fan flick that's trying to be like funded, I think. Oh, yes. That yes. is about like, what if Georgie like didn't die then? I, I, I don't I don't understand the thought or why uh, they even go that route or what that what it is entails. I didn't do enough research on it, but I just thought it was really bizarre. There's a T-shirt involved with it and everything. It's it's really strange. Yeah, it started back any- in August. They There's this... Um, the Tony Dakota, who is the actor who originally portrayed the young Georgie Dembro in the the you know the miniseries, right. they want him to reprise this role twenty years later. And the guy who did Unearth and Untold: The Path to the Pet Cemetery, the documentary, he also co-wrote and is co-producing the upcoming documentary Pennywise: The Story of It. But he launched this crowdfunding campaign uh, to basically create this like sort of what if of like if Georgie would have lived. Um, you know, like, and and I, I don't really know what the point so of weird. that. It would have been <laughs> catastrophic. The Losers Club would never have formed because no. Bill wouldn't have been a part of it. Yeah. Also, I don't understand. There, there's this almost like subculture of, I'm going to sound like an asshole, but actors who maybe didn't have much of a career after their the thing they did as a kid. Like, like for instance, um, the actor who played Rufio made this whole like hook mm-hmm. sequel or at least was campaigning for one about like a new Rufio adventure. I'm like, dude, you're like, older than i am and your and your character died what are you doing like, yeah, I just, it, there's this whole subculture of like I, it, it's really sad because i think it comes from actors maybe latching onto this one role but it's a role <laughs> that gets killed and i don't know and that's whether like or not with, yeah yeah we don't know like if that was his knows, idea yeah, or if it, obviously the guy that's like helming it is it, was his it, idea it that seems to be john campayana's yeah. it seems to be his idea more but it does go into this idea that maybe it's a reddit subculture that just loves these what ifs you know, mm-hmm. it's like the alternate reality. Oh, I can't the stand fan theories. <laughs> I like it's some that, of them, but I don't know. Man. It's, that, it's that gross side of fandom that I just hate where I, I don't oh, know. Geez, I, tell I don't us like, how you really feel, Dan. <laughs> no, I just, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been at Fantastic Fest this week. Like there's just, I, I don't know. I don't want to get too far into it because I don't want to piss anyone off. But I just, it's Hank's like, pissed. Hank's, yeah, Hank it, is you angry. Can hear him, you can hear him in the background. He's probably more pissed at that squirrel that's in a, a tree. But it, it's just this, um, I don't know. I, I just think fans get really obsessive, and I, I think it's like, let it go. Who cares? Like, your character died. Get over it. Find another job. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a, a dickhead. Well, either way, he dies. <laughs> I'm, um, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'll be, I, 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 love, I love that guy's performance. Well, you're, great, you're totally yeah. fine, really Dan, good. because he does die. Um, and that stormy day in 1957, <laughs> he just fucking 
got his arm ripped off and uh our first hero and he's gone already he's gone <laughs> he's gone too soon as they say and we know we know pretty early the foreshadowing in this section again is not even foreshadowing it's him saying this kid's gonna die <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah pretty much pages. so we know he's, he's done like a knob of bone coming out it's so grisly uh who and and we have another hero oh we have a big hero that's paired with him and that's billy, bill dembro billy dens <laughs> randall colburn himself we get a little bit of bill we get just a bit he stutters he's a stutterer he stutters and he's sick he's sick he's home in bed mm-hmm. but uh not sick enough to uh to help seal that boat with that mm-hmm. paraffin i just love that, <laughs> that idea. Now here's a question if you were bill yeah, and you made that boat, and that mm-hmm. boat is what prompted your younger brother to run outside and, uh, you know, play along and get uh, taken. Not the Liam Neeson taken. I'm talking mm-hmm. about taken by Pennywise the clown okay. in the sewer. Would you feel guilt forever? It seems like Georgie might have gone out anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still think I would. Absolutely, yeah, I would absolutely feel guilty. I think I would probably feel more guilty because of the way that his parents handle it and kind of ignore him. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, as they go forward, I think that would just reinforce any kind of guilt that I might have had about giving him the thing that took him out into that situation. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think even if Georgia had gone out, it's still the boat that went into the sewer drain. You know, so I feel like he. I, I I would feel I would hella feel responsible if I was well. Bill the th- the I don't thing, think I would. The, however, though, the thing the, <laughs> the only thing here though is that I mean they don't know why he went to the sewer. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I guess that is a good. I mean, that's they a good never point. find the boat, and I guess Bill could just like assume like, well, he was playing with that boat, and that's why he was out there. I think yeah, he would probably just assume, but they don't know. They just find the body like by yeah. the sewer grate. Or I mean, he is playing in like the the streams with the water though. So Ooh. yeah. You know. We'll talk about this more in the adaptation episode, I guess. But isn't it interesting how in the newer movie, Bill is convinced that Georgie is alive because there's no body? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. That is. Whereas in this, he's pretty sure he's dead. <laughs> they have the body. Well, the whole town is. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Yeah. So Georgie, he kicks this off. He is the uh, the the Pearl Harbor of this World War II to, uh, the sure. parallel. No, sure. <laughs> I, no I, I mean, like, yeah, sure. I, I think it makes sense. I mean, like, this, this, there's been a conflict already for hundreds of years. Incident. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the conceit here. And we, when you're reading about Bill here, do you get a feel that he's going to be the protagonist? That he's going to be one of the main heroes? Um, or do you think that he could just be kind of like, a, oh, well, you know, Bill Dembro, Yeah. Nice to know. That's tough because I I already knew that he was going to be. Yeah, same here. Hero. You know, so it's like I can't really tell. Well, as well, you, you wouldn't think because the next section just totally does not follow him at all. No. So yeah, maybe having read it the first time, I, I if they you know they don't really go back to him at all, they just go around to the next story. I think maybe at that point you're just thinking, oh, he's just going to be, he's just one of the many stories we're going to hear, kind of thing. You know. I think we get enough hints. Georgie's view of Bill when he says like Bill was good at seeing like not just telling yeah you kind of get this sense that Bill is going to be important otherwise we wouldn't be getting those details well what details about Bill because we're going to talk about Bill a little bit more uh when we get to those phone calls but what do we get from Bill in just this specific section with Georgie do we know that he's resourceful in a way 
he's smart. He's certainly mm-hmm. intelligent enough to come up with this little boat. So even as a young age, Bill is very um, he's very mature. He's mature and he's age, intelligent, especially his relationship with his younger brother. He he's knows not the, that mature. They argue know, over a holes. Well, for yeah, yeah, they do. but I mean, he in terms of like I don't know. I I just again like the whole you know um, taking care of his younger brother and like giving him this toy and helping him create it. Like what, what kids do you know that age that like really take the time to help their younger siblings while they're sick of all, you know, of all things, you know, it's like, it's like he's a caring individual, you know, even in a household that seems to be pretty put together and loving the division between the children and the adults is very highlighted and notable from the music that they're listening to. They're listening to little Richard, which is not okay. Um, and that's all I did while the mom is playing for Elise. Yeah. Right? Well, the mom like is playing opposite, Beethoven. Yeah. Um, and they're always kind of listening for her and they're doing things that are taboo. Um, so I think it's just, there's the sense of the child and the adult world. Six years old, Georgie gone too soon. Bill. Well, Spoiler alert, but he gets better. He doesn't have that flu forever, and he doesn't he doesn't die from pneumonia or anything like that. No, he's going to live on. But we also meet another person in this scene. And this isn't a hero. This is our villain. Ooh, we're going to go straight villain. to the old Ville. We're going right to the Pennywise, the dancing clown. And we're going to Villesville. What do we get from Pennywise here? Well, he introduces himself as Mr. Bob Gray, mm-hmm. which I think is something that they, they really leave out of every other adaptation. They really do. I think that's so creepy. Like, yeah. just I, I can't even put my finger on and articulate why, but the fact that he's like, my name is Mr. Bob Gray, otherwise known as Pennywise the Dancing Clown, like, it's such a normal, unassuming name. And it also just hints at, like, like what, where is this coming from? Like, yeah. Like, why does he he's talking to a six-year-old boy wouldn't it wouldn't it lend itself more to just being this like fantastical funny clown creature mm-hmm. or clown named pennywise like i don't you know you don't see clowns at birthday parties going hey i'm john you know genoweth yeah. no. uh also known as bozo <laughs> or whatever the hell you know like it's weird it's just, it just it just hints at a wider yeah at a at both both what you're saying dan with john wayne gacy and that like oh identity is not is not static here and also like there's a history that we are not given access to and it, it yeah. spans back farther than we see I, I, and it's a creepy name i just think it's creepy by virtue of how innocuous it is this is All the right, first cool. description of pennywise we get the yellow eyes and we find out that the sort of eyes that he had always imagined but never actually seen down the basement and this is all through george's point of view and that the real description of pennywise comes on page uh, 13 oh, how about that creepy number um <laughs> And King writes, it's really blunt. There was a clown in the snore drain. The light in there was far from good, but it was good enough to, so that George Dembro was sure of what he was saying. It was a clown, like in a circus or on TV. In fact, he looked like a cross between Bozo and Clarabelle, who talked by honking his, or was it her? George was never really sure of the gender. Horn on Howdy Doody Saturday mornings. Buffalo Bob was just about the only one who could understand Clarabelle, and that always cracked George up. The face of the clown in the storm drain was white. There were funny tufts of red hair on either side of his bald head, and there was a big clown smile painted over his mouth. If George had been inhabiting a later year, he would have surely thought of Ronald McDonald before Bozo or Clarabelle. The clown held a bunch of balloons, all colors, like gorgeous ripe fruit in one hand. In the other, he held George's newspaper boat so i have a question for you guys yeah i never really thought about this Mm -hmm. if it appears to everyone as like their worst fear why does he appear to georgie 
as the clown? Is it because all I could think of is that he he tries to disarm him so much by being this affable clown that when he becomes the monster, the fear is so intense and sweet, you know? Uh, I that disarm, he takes him. Is, uh, disarm yeah. is right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, my God, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he appears, as a, he appears as a clown to mold. That's like his kind of, I don't know, base illusion. Like, yeah. that's just... Because there are think... anecdotes from the past that go back hundreds of years where they say that there's, like, you know, like a lumberjack or someone that looked like a clown Well, was he's with there, yeah. Like, he's he's around when, mm-hmm. like, bad things happen. You know, or even, or I guess, even when we get to it with Agent Mellon, like, the... I, I don't know. I just think it's it's interesting that he chooses to... I have a I have a theory for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. what Dan? Go for it. So yeah, because we know that we know that it tends to appear as a clown to lure people in. Sometimes it's not all all the way consistent. Mm-hmm. However, because of how its eyes appear before Georgie sees it as Pennywise, to me Georgie's worst fear is whatever is in the basement. And and in a weird way, I think maybe he has some kind of foresight into what Pennywise's true form is. So for me, it's like he appears as the clown to lure him in, but then once he actually bites him. I think at that point he is becoming the the thing that Georgie fears in the basement. Does that make sense? Like, it, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that is what happens. I, I, think I, I do that's think what it is. Yeah, I do think it's an interesting question that maybe the book never answers as to why a clown. Um, and we can get more into the nature of it when we learn more about it. But it is right. older than clowns. Yeah. So like, why? <laughs> I don't know. Well, he. I mean, it's written in page fifteen. He goes, "The clown seized his arm, and George saw the clown's face change." What he saw then was terrible enough to make his worst imaginings of the thing in the cellar look like sweet dreams. What he saw destroyed his sanity in one clawing stroke. So he's like, he's lured in by the clown and then all the fears, all his own fears start coming out through through him. But yeah, it doesn't explain well, why he is the clown there. That's like, why I always felt like he he chose the appearance of a clown to lure to because it was easy to lure children in because, children. They, because they weren't scared of clowns at the time this mm-hmm. is before all that this is the 50s you know like yeah. clowns are funny yeah and clowns are on t- tv they're they're you know they're like bozo you know yeah. everybody loves bozo you yeah. know like so you gotta wonder what it looked like before then though That's yeah so uh, interesting. but like it's if it was funny nowadays for me to learn as a kid i would have been like oh my god look it's a uh, you know well, Joe Curie in the you, story. but you think like bef- <laughs> before <laughs> god it would be but you think before be the like clowns the even were popular, like what could, what shape could have, this thing have taken yeah. to maybe, lure people in? You know, uh, maybe it's also, um, and I'm about to delve a little bit into what we find out later, but I'm just doing it to explain a little bit. This is this is one of its reawakenings. The, how it reawakens every 27 years. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Adrian Mellon. So maybe it's just a thing, like when it reawakens for that first act of violence, maybe the clown is just like its go-to position, you know? Like it hasn't had the time to really sort out everything in the town and appears people's worst fears yet. So it just goes to the to the the form of the clown. That's that's I, uh, I get another that. possibility. But, I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, no, you're, you're, you I think you might be right, Dan. No, yeah, but I yeah. think you might be right because it seems like there are instances in the interludes as we continue where um, these people at, during these instances of like awful things that were the, the inciting incident of him coming back, he's always witnessed as the clown. Yes. So that, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good, a good point. Yeah. It's a good form for avoiding questioning and for avoiding notice. Like yeah, people are never going to question a clown and clowns often don't talk anyway. And then they're just part of a general crowd, a circus yeah. crowd. And boy, did we learn our lesson now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one dressed a clown. <laughs> no. So he could have just appeared as like a neighbor that walked down the street 
And it was just like, hey, what's going on? And then like, well, just, I don't think you could because if, there's another character we're going to talk about here that's kind of kind of uh, in between. I think he's kind of villainous. Is Dave Gardner, mm. who sees Georgie out there. Yeah, that's true. So the neighbor but it take, really... and it takes him. I think it says that it takes him. It says although he arrived only 45 seconds after the first scream, so he like takes his time to get there because he's afraid of what is actually happening. He doesn't want like he knows he can't do anything about it. Mm. It's 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 creepy. It's like already we start to we start to see people in the town being complacent with this horror and just kind of letting it happen. Here's a here's a fun question. Uh, do you think if there was like a circus that came into Derry and, you know, it was during the time of Pennywise's reign, do you think Pennywise would have to then like uh, change your form? Like you wouldn't be able oh, to. Oh, you mean if it anymore? was if it wasn't the circus that he that he came in on? It was like, no, a, like a rival circus. What is this like Deadwood? <laughs> I'm just like imagine. Yeah, it's like a rival. It's like a, a clown. The circus comes in. Circus comes in. The I, think, all the time. I think he'd I think he'd view that as a boon. That's just more. That's more of a way to hide. Yeah, I yeah, guess so. Because, like, I, I mean, the, the employees of the uh, of the place might not understand. But not I guess what I'm saying him. is, if they're you wanted older. to kill a clown, would you use the clown uh, visage to 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 get the clown? No, he'd probably use. He'd probably be like a giant bottle of whiskey or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the idea of a circus coming into town, but suddenly Pennywise, just like given his nature, he has to actually perform in it, but not kill anyone. Like, ah, great! Like, like, yeah. he's, like, he's, like, like he's got to do his deep cover. Off. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah all right well you know he's the dancing clown here this is all we know of him so far we don't really know yet that he's a shapeshifter right no we don't know that he can just turn to anything he wants we mm-hmm. think we right now we think he's a dancing clown that is also this horrible thing that george sees but we don't know that it's specific to what george's fears here's a fun little question again if i saw anyone in a store and drain even at six there's no <laughs> fucking way i would walk up to the store and drain. there's no way what would get you to walk up to the store and drain though if it was like Ooh, if it was tough. like uh, one of those um, hosts on the animal shows, like Steve Irwin or someone. So you saw Steve like, Irwin, <laughs> the guy well, who dies like, from. Yeah, look what I found down here. I'm like, Oi! I, the... <laughs> and Mel. I think I think this is a very fair answer. It makes sense for him to be down there. And I loved those shows. And I'd be like, whoa, what did you find? Like, what is a cool snake? <laughs> oh, um, man, I, I, I don't know what it would have. It would probably be like. I'm trying to think of something I loved as a kid, you know, like well, it's like a transformer, like trying to move around and <laughs> the giant transformer in the sewer. <laughs> like, I, I think for me, it might have to be like Indiana, Indiana Jones. All spark. Like maybe Indiana Jones with his fedoras down there and he's like, hey, uh, kid, help me. Uh, and I'm like, whoa, all right. Yeah, it's Indiana. <laughs> I'm going to be haunted by Harrison Ford and his storm drain trying to get me to help him get something yeah, out of there. Fedoras rain down Creepy. on just like when he jumps over to get to, you know, to jock. In uh, Raiders of Lost Ark, he's, he's like sitting there. He's like, like "Get me out of here! We, we are going, going to die!" die. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my god, Indy, I'll help you!" And then all of a sudden, he turns like Belloc or something, and like or Tot, and drags me into the fucking Star Dream. That would get me. Oh god! But you wouldn't. You wouldn't think like, wait, Indiana Jones is a fictional character. Well, I might, but at six years old, I'm like, holy shit! Right, Harrison you're six Ford years is standing old, right there. So that's that's the thing. It'd probably be like Zubli oh that's a good one. Oh, that no that actually is really yeah, that uh, actually makes more sense though. if it was a puppy just like mewling and like caught in the drain yeah that but then, would but then absolutely he doesn't be get to, i feel like he you know not gets off but he relishes the the interaction mm. and the trust that he builds by talking well as far as i'm concerned uh i don't know if you've ever seen a movie called uh homeward bound the incredible journey 
yeah. where all the animals talk. And I think that would not work. Not to the humans, though. <laughs> no, not to the humans. But maybe, let's just say that you could hear the animals talk. I probably would be okay with that and still be like, well, maybe, you know, either way, this dog needs help. And I'm going to help him. It'd but be a this... great end of the movie if they came back and the humans were like, what the <laughs> Yeah. All I'm saying is, there's no that. fucking way I'm going to a storm drain to help out a clown. It's not gonna happen. I'm going back inside. Well, if it was a Muppet, if it was some kind of Muppet, I would probably, I probably go would. in there help, like talk. Like Kermit was in there or something. I, I would or Gonzo. I would I would go and talk to him. Yeah, I just think there needs to be more of a hook. But maybe yeah. maybe I'm, you know in the 50s is a little different. There's a yeah, clown down yeah. there. Again, he liked Bozo and stuff, so maybe he was channeling that, and that's why. Yeah. Well, so. Chapter one's after the flood. Oh, what comes after the flood? Jump we jump ahead. Me. We find out that dairy is still dairy. Not very happy place and incredibly homophobic. And that is chapter two after the festival. And this takes place in 1984. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, I was born. This is where we're introduced me too. to... Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great, guys. Were you, were you born... Wait, wait. I was born in 83, so this is... Uh, I was around when this happened. Hmm, wow, and, so you're a little uh, baby wandering uh, it, around. It's, uh, it's haunted my dreams. <laughs> Do you think so? Adrian Mellon could have been walking around the town and they'd be like, whoa, who's this kid over here? Oh, it's, it's Mac- Oh, Mac- it's a two-year-old kid. Yeah, it would be really creepy. Uh, <laughs> I was not at this festival. You weren't at the festival. But we do get introduced to, uh, who Mike just mentioned, Adrian Mellon. Adrian Mellon is a tragic character, just like Georgie. Who do you think is more tragic, Adrian Mellon or Georgie? Uh, Georgie. You think so? Uh, yeah, six-year-old kid. Both are pretty tragic. They're both I think really tragic. Melon symbolizes something that's not just wrong with the town, but society, society in general. I agree. Well, yeah, absolutely. Really disturbing in, in that story. Yeah. Because who really I kills Adrian Mellon? I think Pennywise gives the death blow. I think he would have been severely hurt, but probably would have survived. Survived had Pennywise. Yeah, I agree. Bridge, I think. But he wouldn't have died from the hands of Pennywise if he wasn't thrown off that goddamn bridge. That's true too. Well, so, again, yeah. and this is so. This is. Like the way that he gets killed is also via the town mm-hmm. helps first. Yeah. Whereas the same kind of thing with uh, Georgie, you know, like with, with, with Gardner not coming to his rescue right away. True. Because he could have maybe maybe saved him. Maybe he would have saved him. Yeah, I mean, he heard the first scream. Had he, had he run out there and got him before, you know, maybe he, maybe. You never know. Here's another thought that I just, that just came to mind. Uh, in the beginning of Jaws 4, The Revenge, um, the son of Brody gets his arm ripped off in a yellow slicker. Ah, um, uh, you're right. Is that, was that an homage? Is that to, an homage? Uh, is, is, is Jaws supposed to be it? <laughs> hey, Jaws makes well, it. Well, hey, it, it, it turns into Jaws. That's it's true. That's uh, a that's shared right. universe, Sam. Yeah. I think we'll have to talk to the, the director <laughs> and writer of yeah, uh, Jaws for the that'll Revenge. Be, uh, that'll be our seventh uh, episode of the It coverage where we just cover Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> that could be fun. Either way. All right. Let's talk about Adrian Mellon for a second. So Adrian Mellon's having a great time. He's at the Bassey Park Fairgrounds. Just won the Pitch Till You Win uh, stall, uh, which is pretty great because I never win anything at these carnivals because um, they're all gamed and rigged. Uh, it's so bitter. My I, I don't really like I don't like carnivals. If you want a cheap stuffed animal, I will like, get you one. I want a cheap stuffed animal. I want the Garfield stuffed animal I always see. Yeah at these or the snoopy ones either one i like i like both animated pets he's hanging out with his boyfriend he's having a great night in dairy would you go up to the sewer if it was garfield if it was garfield you goddamn right i would oh, that's another one i'm put, i'm throwing that out there and if it was snoopy in there i'm done <laughs> just done and then he could actually then kind of Snoopy's double his face changed well here's an interesting question could pennywise oh, then split 
and have be both Snoopy and Woodstock because then they could tag team and I could go <laughs> over to try to save Woodstock in the drain because I would save Woodstock. But he can do whatever he wants. He's he's the dead boys. So yeah, um, that's true. So then I would I would probably be attacked by Snoopy from the other end. I'm so be, sorry for. I think Woodstock would be. I think Woodstock up. would be eating you, and Snoopy would be doing the Snoopy dance. So we <laughs> we have Don Haggerty, who is Adrian's boyfriend, and um, we all, all of a sudden we get a mention that he is being interviewed. But he's talking about the hat that Adrian was wearing and that it was drawing a lot of attention. It was an I love dairy hat. Yeah. Which, to be honest, did he love dairy? Adrian did. Uh, I think I, Adrian really did. Yeah, I think he I did. did. I think I think he I don't think he knew enough to to fear dairy. Well, who is Adrian? <laughs> He's a young man. He's, <laughs> well, he's, a, he's a writer. He is a writer. So we got another writer that's troubled in King's Dominion. Mm-hmm. And he comes into town and he finds that he has a story here and he wants to stick around, even though the it's town like sucks. It is like Salem's Lot. It's like the more yeah. realistic version of Salem's Lot. I, I got that Adrian was attracted to almost like the small town kitsch of dairy, you know? Yeah. Like, like it not. And then obviously there are, if you're a journalist, there is some appeal to the darker underbelly of it as well. Mm hmm. It's also, also kind of that goes into that xenophobia as he comes into town and people don't really like his kind. That's true. He is gay and mm-hmm. his boyfriend and him are attending the festival. They get the attention, unfortunately, of some jerks in the town who are comprised of... Webby, Garten, Chris Unwin, and... <laughs> Total Stephen King names. Those, those are very Kingian. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. And they also had Steve Dubay, who's also 17. Steve Dubay. Yeah. This is an 17. interesting point because I think Adrian and Don are not children. And in this case, it is less about being a child and being scared and more about just like the evilness of the town. Right. That always kind of struck me because this part has been omitted from the other versions of, that I've seen. And apparently we're going to get in this new It movie, I think. Right. We are. So... The fact that it wasn't like a child, that these are adults, and then they see it. So that's also really interesting. But I guess it, it just means that, you know, he's there to, to eat. He's, he doesn't really care. I mean, <laughs> there's no care. Well, you think there'd be kids around at this festival that he could prey on, but I guess I think uh-huh. it's because it's like time, perfect time, perfect place. And you also get this is really kind of fun because not fun i mean it's awful what happens but stephen king is writing about um this this monster under a bridge mm-hmm. which is what he originally intended what to do with troll if we're going back to this idea of pennywise awakening in both the instance of adrian mellon and georgie he has to wait for the victim to come to him not the other way around because he because he's he's just waiting there and then adrian gets thrown over then he gets to eat him right like right. that's right. so maybe, maybe it's like he's in a weakened state kind of thing or, or something i think also yeah. though he's probably drawn to the evil of the mm-hmm. town so he yeah, senses that something yeah, awful totally. is happening and he kind of slithers out of the sewers well so then you could lay all the blame to webby garten stephen bischoff debay and chris unwin because those are the three homophobic teens that really put this into motion in the 80s couldn't Dubay could have just been LeBay and just been related somehow to that character from Christine. <laughs> so he somehow moves out all the way to like Pittsburgh. At some yeah, it could point. have been like a long last relative or something. You know, hey, guess what? My cousin's out there. Um, Christine is also Pennywise, so it's fine. Oh, that's right. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Pennywise can change into cars. But uh, so, yeah. So he's the life partner of Don Haggerty, Adrian Mellon. Adrian Mellon gets a pretty awful death. I mean, gets bitten on the armpit. I'm attracted to armpits, but not to not to get bitten into an armpit. And, and he also gets his ribs cracked, and 
and then just... This is a bit of a toss-off. You're attracted to armpits. I guess we'll, we'll talk the, about it. There's yeah, something we'll, about them. We'll go back but to that. In this case, I don't really <laughs> want to bite into an armpit. That's a little much for me. And he gets his ribs broken. Yeah. Big clown hug. Here's a question. If you got bitten by like, like, like a shark or something like that on the armpit, you're dead, right? Oh, you're gone. Yeah, there's no there's some major, some major arteries. Yeah, there's yeah no, like yeah. that's organs right there. Yeah. So that's like the death. That's kind of like the death nail for him. You think? <laughs> I think so. But yeah, he also gets dragged underwater and all this other yeah, shit. He, that happens yeah, to him. He, he he gone. And it's sad. Uh, it's an awful thing that happens. And it, again, it's you know we're seeing the 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 reality of this this town and and the the disturbingness of outsiders not being accepted and this creepy old clown. It's interesting that we find the the real evils of dairy through this incident because we do find out that obviously this is something that's going to well, continue nonstop and is a rampant thing and problem of dairy when we start going back into the children's past and you know whether it's through and is this Bowers this is technically sorry this is technically like the inciting incident of eighty four mm-hmm. of, of his return oh it is yeah this is what starts it all over again even yeah. though Mike Hanlon admits later on that he kind of had feelings that something was going to happen again but this is the thing that convinces him like okay yeah this is we're back. Yeah, well, the dinosaur story. No, we're uh, back, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we got this incident, which is told in a very uh, fun manner. It's back and forth with the cops and the interrogation. So King well, kind of does a, a fun a little time. device here of being able to, you know, showing the different point of views, uh, which makes me reminds me of a fun Akira uh, Kurosawa film, Rashomon, because we're getting two different, we're getting multiple point of views of what actually happened. Um, on this event, but they all seem to tell the the real story, which is that uh, this boy Adrian Millen was thrown over the bridge. Pennywise, the the dancing clown, is uh, is the the third man, in which I believe they reference even like the fugitive of just yep. oh, there's always someone there. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. we know because this and is it like, gets covered up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally covered because up because of the police chief wants a good record, mm-hmm. and which it, is and another it, evil conceit of this. And town. then they all and they all get out, or they're it's under appeal, so they're just like still in town yeah this is an interesting window into dairy in the realm of things with the story it's very superfluous if you really think about it i feel like it just hits home again that i mean the contrast between georgie and adrian and age especially um is important because you're like okay no children are safe and then you're like okay no no one is safe (laughs) yeah because how zero percent of people are safe how old is adrian is he like 24 or something like that they're old enough to drink they go to the falcon yeah how do you guys feel about because I, I I don't necessarily have this complaint myself, but I've heard it from other people who have read it, especially in in 2018. Yeah, just in, in the book's depiction of of them as gay men, and also the cop the depicting the cops as being so homophobic. Like, do you think it's a I guess a well rounded portrayal of gay characters, especially given that it was written in the 80s when they weren't so common in horror fiction? Like, do you feel like it's I don't know for me, I feel like King has a very sympathetic point of view toward them, you know, but. Sometimes I do wonder if he if he leans so far into that being so flamboyant. I, I don't know. I was just curious. Oh, I, totally. I feel like yeah. the details where he's like Don Haggerty is crying and like wiping away his eye shadow. It's like not necessary. <laughs> um, and King has a very specific, maybe limited like view of what totally. and, and like, you know, is. I still think it's like pretty progressive for most horror writers at the time, just because they weren't really having those characters. And obviously King is like, is, is, he is clearly showing that the town is homophobic and that is wrong, but they do feel a little bit like broad caricatures to me, uh, you know, compared to, to maybe some gay characters he would have later on. Um, like in the yeah, bizarre, I mean, instance, yeah. Yeah. And like you're saying, Dan, I mean, it's a, it's a product of the time in which it was written, you know, yeah, I think like so, I, 
I think if he wrote I, this I now, I think it's a product of King not knowing many gay people. I really don't. Yeah, think. well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I just think I think if he wrote that book now, I don't think that would be the, that well, overt. And, or maybe Adrian would be, but Don would be more reserved. Or you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it would necessarily be that now. But he, yeah. he also has in um in the Bizarre Bed Dreams, he and a few other books, he 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 has had more current gay characters that I do think are treated. Um, just, just more like with more nuance and not quite as stereotypes, you know. Right, um, right. So I, I'm, I yeah, I think his his worldview has uh, has widened. And, and, and with the cops and obviously the bullies, that portrayal doesn't bother me as much because I think that is very much in, in line <laughs> yeah, how those characters absolutely. would be, and, and not even just in the '80s, but perhaps now too. Yeah. Who else? Uh, who else is in this section that we talk about here? Uh, is I that feel it? Like we should really, we should really keep it moving. Yeah, I think I think yeah, we've we, got we, through we got all the me. old. Uh, characters here and i think we're moving into chapter three six phone calls and who do we start off with here <laughs> i think stan the man the stan the man uris what do we think about stan we, we meet him well i guess we start with really patricia but we start yeah, with we, all of these phone calls are are not all of them actually because richie's isn't um, but most of them are told through a person that is close to the adult and not the adult themselves. Right. We get Patty for Stan. Um, Eddie's is actually told from from his point of view for some of it, but also it's like a weird omniscient third too. Yeah. When we see um, a lot of his, I feel like we see a lot from Meyer, his wife, right? Meyer Karspeck's kind of point. Like it's not from her point of view, but I feel like we get a lot of detail about her. Like through we that. do, but it's all from Eddie. It's all Eddie thinking it's about still all her. Eddie, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, sure. And then uh, Rick, Ricky Lee, the bartender. For, yeah, the bartender for, for Ben, yeah. and then also um, Audra for Bill, and Tom yeah, for Beverly. Although it does switch to Beverly mid section. Yeah, yeah. I think with Stan, I I feel like that's the most important one to talk about, at least right off the bat, because for my money, that's actually the most characterization we get of Stan through I the agree. whole novel. I think he's the least developed of all the the losers as kids, and I actually enjoy how much time we spend with him, and we get to kind of. We, I feel like more so than the others, we get to learn about his entire life from college all the way on. Like we get kind of this this big circular picture of who Stan is as we a get, person. We get twenty pages of Stan, and I think it's important though to build that character as much as they do in this section because this is really the important part of the story that he plays. You know what I mean? I mean, we don't really get a lot of him when he's younger. We don't as much as we get everybody else. And I think that this all this all really kind of informs how he ends up taking like his own life. I feel you know just and 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 it's it's kind of it's kind of genuinely really sad. Oh, it's uh, so sad. Gosh, I mean, like, and and, and it's and, it's yeah, reflecting. I mean, because he's the least. I don't know if he's. I guess he's by consequence of this the least developed, but he is the most isolated of the losers. We don't get access to him because he doesn't choose to give them access. And the consequence is that because he wasn't as good at connecting, um, this happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also something to be said about him being the first. I mean, obviously, because it has to be because we're it's going to kick off everything. But you have Adrian and Don who are homosexuals. And then you also have Stan, who's Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something to be said about that separation of culture within the the whole town of like the dairy town like construct because they are he is marginalized for being mm-hmm. Jewish. Oh yeah, and I think that there is some sort of connective bridge there between well, the two. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's, it's with all of them. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you have, you know, Mike Hanlon's black. We have uh, Ben Hanscom, who's overweight. We have Bill, who's a stutterer. Mm-hmm. We have the hypochondriac. We have, uh, and then Richie, you know. So it's Richie like, is it, so it, terrible. Just, oh, he's, yeah. like, <laughs> he's trying so hard to be like, oh, the glasses. You know? They were made life so difficult. Yeah, and you're like, but, okay, but, well, then, he's not. <laughs> and then Ben yeah, I do, I, as well. I do agree, but, though, with, um, I, don't you think Stans follows his, like, I feel like Stan's identity follows him the most into adulthood because even his wife, yes. even within their Jewish community, like because his wife is Jewish also, even within that, she is somewhat isolated too. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like they have kind of the most, um, yeah. the the hardest time with all that because he, in a way, he changes the least, I think, out of all the losers, like as as he gets older. Or, or, I don't know, maybe not. It's so, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts. Well, they're so orthodox too. He he does live this very moral, grounded lifestyle. I mean, even when very he, suburban too. I think you know. It's well, like yeah. Most, yeah. I mean, I mean, even like with their marriage to you know to Patty, like they don't even have sex until like on their wedding night. You know, like there, there's something just so pure about his character. Like he lives life by the rules. Yeah, I, I Stan for me because he's able to. He's actually very successful, mm-hmm. and he's married to this woman he loves. And I think that out of all the losers, he's kind of the one that has it the best in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a very like complacent way. But I think that's also his undoing because he's so able and quick to forget because he does not want to remember. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone else is just kind of haunted by it in the back yeah. of their minds. And I think that so that when he is confronted with the fact that it's there and, and all this comes flooding back, he can't handle it, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he, well, he has so much to lose. He's Yeah. So, yeah, it's this is, I mean, a super tragic character. Um, I wish, and I think that this is also something, and well, we'll get to it when we get to the movie stuff, but I don't think Stan's done um, uh, justice. No, but I don't think, because I just don't think, again, there's enough source material other yeah. than the actual death that he has. I mean, you can't, you're not going to be able to adapt like his background with his wedding and all this other stuff. I mean, there's just stuff in the novel, especially these 20 pages in this one, you know, the beginning of the six phone calls where you just would never be able to adapt that to the screen. I mean, unless you well, had some yeah, like, sort of I, wedding reel or some, something that, that shows the background of, of everything that he's gone through. Because honestly, like the majority of his characterization is just hit how he conquered the doubts that people laid out for him, whether it was his parents or his in-laws and all. And I, so I, I again, like for film, you wouldn't be able to portray that as much, but I keep thinking of like the beginning of the big chill, the whole conceit of that movie is you know it's the the funeral that brings everyone together and you find out who all these characters are through the death of this one person but you don't really ever know who this one person is other than these yeah, like, larger truths and it's almost like he, it's it, it's almost like he just becomes a MacGuffin. yeah it's sad he's a plot device mm-hmm. like just like georgie yeah. is in a way yeah it gets hard to write about someone <laughs> who you know already <laughs> commits suicide and you're like well geez i mean i don't know like i would we feel more rewarded if stan was like a hyper present hyper developed character would that have been a would that have been a benefit well where this is structured it wouldn't have made sense i mean once he's already he's already used it as a MacGuffin. so like the stan's death is the reason why we are introduced to all these other characters it's the reason why everyone comes back to town at that point what does it matter if you have so much further characterization about it it's it is exactly like the big chill in the sense that the reader could feel sadder i guess but i i I think it's almost more seven of them you know there's like so many exactly so it almost becomes like you you just get these little details from it because at the end like it doesn't really matter like you just know that this guy has to mean something to these characters and so it becomes more about the characters that 
that are connected to him than about the actual person in any way. I think what we do get out of Stan here is interesting, though. You yeah. know, um, he's very, oh, yeah, he is very that. independent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he is, and, and we know based on what happens to him later on the road that he's going to be the most haunted out of all of them because of what he, you know, what he experiences as a child and what he has to carry with him. Um, which is another reason why I think he's prompted to do what he does because he knows the horrors that await him in ways that the other losers don't. And again, the way we were kind of sequentializing these these episodes, it's kind of hard for us to to kind of discuss a lot of those things. But there are things that happen to Stan that don't happen to the other losers, and like, yeah. and that there that does give him reasoning for why he kills himself. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is I don't know why I thought this, but when I first read this book. I always thought it was like, and maybe it's just because I love a nightmare on Elm street. I always thought the suicide was influenced by Pennywise and that there was, there was that something happened and then the suicide was the, you know, the result of it. Like, you, you know, when Pennywise like, showed up. Yeah. Like, like he, you know, like he transformed and yeah. Like, 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 you know, in like nightmare on Elm street, whenever something really bad happens, you you find the victim and it looks like as if it was self imposed or self inflicted. Oh, you mean like oh, a, yeah, like, yeah. A frame, like a framing thing. Almost. Yeah, like in Nightmare on oh, Elm Street okay. one when um, Johnny Depp and uh, Heather Langenkamp's friend is in the jail cell and it looks like he hung himself, but it was really actually Freddy that did it. Like yeah. I always well, thought I it was Pennywise influenced. There, there. I think that there is some. Um, it's not directly the suicide, but it is. I, I had this in my cemetery marker when Patty is trying to go upstairs. Um, she kicks the bag of buttons over and some of the buttons spilled out glittering like glazed eyes in the lamplight. She saw at least half a dozen black ones. And the reason why she wasn't going up to see Stan was because she couldn't find a black button. And I think this is meant to imply that like there are forces at work that were keeping her from going to up to Stan yeah. in time. And I thought that was really creepy. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we do think that it is Stan that ultimately slices his wrists. Yes, yeah, but there are yeah. forces acting to prevent that from to prevent that from failing, to prevent her from right. finding him. I think that... It is interesting because, yeah, we don't see, we never see the actual suicide from, we don't know the, we're not with him when the razors actually go across his veins, right? Like that's, it's no, just like the before yeah. and after of it, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it happens in such a way that it's clear that he did it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it. I feel like it would be more of a spectacle if, if Pennywise was there or there would be a struggle of some sort, some sort. But he's just like resting peacefully in the... <laughs> in the tub and the, and these slashes, Ugh, it's, it's horrible. But I also think that because we get so much backstory and we spend so much time developing this character, the last thing you think is going to happen is he's going to kill himself like minutes after he gets this phone call. But that also to me sets the tone for the rest of this book. Like that is how scared he was of this thing mm. that he couldn't even come to grips with, trying even pretending to Thinking try to remember mm -hmm. that he yeah. went upstairs and cut his wrists. I mean, that is, that's what's so terrifying. I think moving forward to all the rest of the phone calls, because didn't you think, and again, I had already seen the miniseries, but reading it, I was really trying to read it as if I had read it for the first time. Didn't you feel the first time you read it? Like, is this just going to be like a one by one situation where these, like, how do these people kill themselves when they get this phone call? <laughs> like, are they going to be, is each person going to be stronger than the last? Or is, mm -hmm. you know, like, I think it, it's a great way to start off the phone calls. I think it's more table setting for King, which is all really what this first part is at this point. I mean, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's all set yeah, it's up. a prelude. Yeah, so, sure. Um, so, is there anything else you want to talk about with Stan? I mean, I feel bad. Like we, we haven't really gone into the details of everything, like, you know, with his own background and, 
the whole back and forths with his in-laws and whatnot. But we I mean, honestly, it, we honestly yeah. still don't even know that much about him. It's more about Patty, um, yeah, and yeah. her perception of him. And I, I like Patty a lot. I like the Me characterization. Too. I like the development with this character. It's probably <laughs> randomly one of the most developed female characters King's written in in the course of those uh, those twenty pages. Uh, and I am right there with her and how terrified she is, uh, and just every little nuance. You know, he doesn't normally do this. Should I go upstairs or the? thinking this or that or trying the door like it's just it's so I, that whole section is really well written and it's i really like i really liked her character i kind of wish she like showed up like you know like tom and <laughs> and audra show you know i wish she kind of went there and was like why the hell did you call me <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. you know like, why didn't she show up in the town like trying to find mike you know for revenge <laughs> could have been like uh that scene in jaws when um you know th- <laughs> When the, oh, with, with when the mother <laughs> yeah the alice's mom so you she knew like yeah. it's like where were you she you slaps knew, him. and you still called him and then mike she, just she's like she's like she's like you knew there was a cosmic entity who like, <laughs> you did nothing and then, and then like bill bill's like it's yeah, not your fault it's not your fault it, like, yes yes it is or, yes, or it she's, is. she's wrong mike no she's not and then they hop on silver together and then write it um <laughs> it also establishes that they can't uh they can't have children or at least that's it does yeah and then because they talk about how like procreation is not even a thought when they're having sex which is kind of depressing you know because they want they, he wants children he wants to have this whole family well we find out uh, a little thing about that in the future mm, yeah that's true <laughs> we'll have to save that for later though yeah. um in the meantime let's go to our next character um, the greatest character of the losers club oh uh, is that why <laughs> richie tozer what is richie doing in this chapter he's let's taking... just say <laughs> Los Angeles is not going to be able to get their favorite disc jockey uh, <laughs> to talking to Clarence Such Clemens. a lucrative career. With, you're so famous. I know. <laughs> hey, I like I live on the beach and I get to hang out with Clarence. Uh, I, I love the update that for the, the new movie. Like it will not be it like will not be believable if he's like a like a highly <laughs> successful DJ. <laughs> like a morning zoo. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they handle like that one. Show host or something. Yeah, I'm a comedian or something. I think yeah. he'll be a comedian. I think he'll be like a stand-up comedian. Or yeah, like, like having a podcast or something like that. He's literally Bill Hader. So. Yeah, yeah, it would be hilarious. He's like, oh, well, I'm man. in a new show called uh, um, uh, Jerry or like, you know, or Harry or something <laughs> like that. Instead of Barry. Like, Instead of no, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've he changed his name to Bill Hader when he got older as, yeah. as a stage name. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you guys because more so than um, than Stan. Once again, we go into Stan's backstory because that's really a lot of the time that we get with Stan. The others, not so much. Like we don't hear a ton about what happened to Richie between Derry and and you know as an adult DJ. So my question for you guys is because I feel like most of what we see of Richie in this chapter is is his voices, right? Like that's his trademark. Mm-hmm. Do you think Richie is actually funny in the novel? I'm not talking about like portrayals or whatever. I'm talking about like the voices he does and the jokes he makes. Do you think they're funny? Because they actually started to kind of grate on me even early on in this. Oh, chapter, I, right? I don't think it's funny at all. No, I didn't find yeah, it funny I at either. all. Yeah. I, and I don't I, know if it's it or what, but like I, a lot of it's racist and whatever else. No, it's I the Studio yeah. 60 problem. Like, yeah. Um, and by Studio 60, I mean the now defunct show that uh, Aaron Sorkin tried to Ooh. set off in like the oh, in 2006, the which was. It was like about like SNL writers, but the problem was that like you couldn't write the humor of the show because I don't know, <laughs> shocker, it's actually really hard to write comedy. I always wondered if the marvelous Miss Maisel had that problem, but I haven't watched it. No, apparently yeah, that it's show a. Was really, that show's um, awesome. Susan's watching it now. I, anyway, yeah, I don't know. I, 
I think that the comedy in written in that is very, speaks to that era. Whereas I feel like this, the comedy that he's like doing and the voices and the characters that he has in 1984 are not funny. And they're not funny in the 50s either. But maybe I would have found <laughs> yeah. it funny if I was a kid in the 50s. I don't know. Yeah, but not, I mean, I think I find the problematic aspects of the jokes problematic. But I totally buy into the like, here's this charismatic guy who can do a ton of impressions. Yes. Like, yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, I'd like this person. I mean, I guess he's similar to like any because I, I I think morning zoo DJs are some of the un- most unfunny people on the planet. Like I, I both like <laughs> in their personalities and the jokes they tell us just such bull. It's like that scene on Louie where he where uh, he's on the phone with them and they're just saying like, oh, whoa, whoa, Kansas. I'm it's just like all, this, it's just like, just <laughs> all I can think noise. of. The, the... We did a we did a sketch once that was called Captain and the Bitch. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was like Captain and the Bitch in the mornings. <laughs> the captain and here's the bitch. Or like the 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 DJs from Parks and Rec. Have you guys seen that? Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah, oh, it was like so that, funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember I was on like uh, to pr- I was to promote my theater company's first show. I got to be on Q101 like in, in Chicago and like. <laughs> I was put on the morning zoo show and they were just like, all right, Dan. Uh, and the way I got on is because an improv teacher worked there, but he wasn't in the studio. So I was just with the, his like three partners or whatever. And they're like, oh, you're in Michael's improv class. All right. Who's the hottest girl in class? Oh. I was just like, shut up. And so like, oh, Rich is not quite like that, but I, I guess I buy that. If those clowns could get a job doing that, then this guy who's actually good at doing voices and shit maybe could, you know, could feasibly become successful like that. Well, I don't know about you, but I think Buford Kistrivel and Wyatt the Homicidal Bag Boy <laughs> is so funny. It's like the funniest thing I've ever heard I also, in my life. But I also think um, that a lot of the stuff that we get when he's an adult, when he's talking to his friends is a throwback to the jokes that he said back with them. So yeah, yeah we're still not going to find those funny because and, and old be clear, yeah. I don't dislike. I actually like Richie a lot as a character. And Love for Richie. Me, where the, 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 the for me, the money in Richie is that he masks this kind of intense pain and like this intellectual curiosity and all this stuff. He kind of masks that with his his like exterior, you know. So so I do still like him as a character. I'm just yeah, I'm talking about specific jokes. Or but kind that, of just like, man, like, that's that's what I do love about Richie is the fact that he uses humor as a way to escape the horror, which is kind of more realistic to me. Just from oh, a personal that, yeah. level, because I I will always start cracking jokes or something like that, mm-hmm. or like even in the moment where it's like ultimate horror, I'll always make some sort of weird quip or whatever. And that's just that that to me, like that's why I like it. To a very specific ritual that will occur later. In this particular chapter, when he's being called upon, we do find out some information about him. We don't actually find out just his long form history at all, especially not as as deep as what Stan has. But he is a hotshot. He's living out on the beach. He's he's called upon specifically. He's got contact lenses. Oh, he's got contact lenses. He's a he's he's a hip guy, he's and he knows rock and roll. Uh, he's he knows a lot of vinyl, and uh, he 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 likes to lean a little bit on uh, some of the oldies and some, some of the new tunes uh, from today. And by today, I'm in the '80s. And uh, one figure from the '80s, as we just had mentioned previously, Clarence Clemens calls him specifically because he wants to talk to him. Big bad boy Clarence Clemens, the late Clarence Clemens, actually. It kind of reminded me of all the stuff with like Larry Underwood from The Stand, 
when yeah, you know, yeah, when he's on the phone call with his girlfriend. Yeah, and so it, it works for me, and I and I totally am interested because it's such a different type of character than we get from everyone, and his reactions feel very real to me. Like he leans on pop culture to to kind of wean through some of his anxieties that he has, and I like that. That so that felt very human, and so for me, I always felt like Richie's the easiest person to connect with out of all the losers. Uh, and he, uh, I, I, one thing I will note in this that I that I did start rolling my eyes about. Um, especially when I had to hear Steven Weber describe everything is how literal they get with the travel arrangements for each one of the characters. Like, <laughs> like, all right, well, I got to fly in here and then I got to rent I a car. I can make the 415 train <laughs> yeah. and I can get to... It's the, it's the Chris Farley thing, for which I think we referenced in the last episode too, but Chris Farley in Wayne's World, just like giving those unnecessary travel <laughs> details, which they actually don't pay off except for Tom Rogan, I guess, is the only one where, where it does. yeah. yeah. Uh, I also think this is the first time that we get uh, some mention of his connection with the other kids because the the first phone call when Stan gets it, we just hear Stan's side where he's just like, "Uh uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. I remember. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Bye. He does talk about how Bill is a writer. The horror books. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Okay. But, but, but this is where we first hear about Henry and Belch and you know, the, like, I I guess Richie's like, you know, um, what frightened him when he was kid, when just these bullies, you know? Richie really does become like a bit of a window for us. He's like, he gives a whole rundown of everything. I mean, on like page 70, when had he last thought of San Uris? Five years ago? 10? 20? Rich and his family had moved away from Derry in the spring of 1960, and how fast all their faces faded. His gang, that pitiful bunch of losers with their little clubhouse and what had been known then as the Barons. Funny name for an area as lush with growth as that place had been. Kidding themselves that they were jungle explorers or CBs carving out a landing strip on a Pacific atoll while they were held off the Japs. Kidding themselves that they were dam builders, cowboys, spacemen in a jungle world. You name it. Whatever you name it, don't let's forget what it really was. It was hiding. Hiding from the big kids. Hiding from Henry Bowers and Victor Chris and Belch Huggins and the rest of them. What a bunch of losers they had been. Stan Uris with his big Jew boy nose. Bill Dembro who could say nothing but high silver without stuttering so badly that it drove you almost dog shit. Beverly Marsh with her bruises and her cigarettes rolled into the sleeve of her blouse ben hanscom who had been so big he looked like a human version of moby dick and richie tozer with his thick glasses and his a averages and his wise mouth and his face which begged to be pounded into new and exciting shapes was there a word for what they had been oh yes there always was le mat juste in this case le mat juste was wimps how it came back, how all of it came back, and now he stood here in his den, shivering as helplessly as a homeless mutt caught in a thunderstorm, shivering because the guys he had run with weren't all he remembered. There were other things, things he hadn't thought of in years, trembling just below the surface, bloody things. And that's such a good, like, it's a great, oh, it's shit, a great there's a lot more. It's a flooded than... rundown of just, like, these memories rushing back, and mm-hmm. I, I like that. Because he so, doesn't even mention everybody. He doesn't mention it's, Eddie. It's imp- no. You know what I mean? Like, there's, oh, like, yeah, it's he just, doesn't mention Eddie. It's, yeah. it's just a weird flush of, like, certain people that just, like, like, like that he remembered, you mm-hmm. know? When I think it is important that we do Richie now instead of later, because, again, I think he kind of stands out like a sore thumb in terms of his marginalized status, which doesn't really exist. Like, I feel like... (laughs) Yeah, it's the glasses. I feel like Steve ran out of, like... (laughs) things to do to make a child oppressed and he was like well i guess he'll like be really annoying with his voices and he'll be like a good student and well, like he'll he's outspoken glasses. like he's he's not gonna like just set he, back he's the class con he's the class con he's gonna always be picked on because of that because he's the but one that, that is not at all equivalent to stuttering or being black or being jewish well, isn't, like it's no, isn't he a definitely. bit of a klutz though i mean isn't that how he breaks his glasses and things <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're all like they're like you know i can't handle this guy because uh you know i, I was 
I was growing up to hate blacks, but I, I really can't stand clutches. Just, just after okay. Patty's at Patty's section, like it, it did chafe me a little bit for him to be like, oh, the glasses. And I'm like, OK, Richie. Well, like, but if you think about it in terms of like his future, like the the way that he even processes things and and he, he's like one of the last to come around that member because he thinks he genuinely has taught himself to believe that his first experience with Pennywise was a dream. So he's he's almost not a true blue loser. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> yeah, because Richie is the yeah, yeah he's the latest to come back around to all, to all that stuff. Yeah. Mike's like just sitting there fuming. He's like, don't. No, I mean, he, he's a true blue loser in the sense that uh, he's also cool. So, oh. um, you know, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I you know I just happen to be the coolest one of the group, guys. Um, but, uh, speaking you know. of cool losers, uh, let's get to uh, chapter three. Ben Hanscom takes a drink. Oh wow, you really do love Ben Hanscom. <laughs> I love a great alcoholic, and Ben is one of them. Now, uh, we got Ben Hanscom looking hot, looking right. He's really hunky. We have not yet even seen fat Ben. Yeah. Um, Big Ben. I like, I really love this whole section. I love the fact that he shows up at this bar. I love the interactions with him and Ricky Lee. And I love Ricky Lee's, uh, you know, how he almost sees, he almost thinks he's a, he's the ghost of that guy that like, came in or killed himself or whatever, you know, because like, he just looks so haggard and, and just destroyed and he's drinking so much. It's like <laughs> just absolutely scary. I, I think, I mean, have you guys ever met someone like that in a bar? Uh, yes. We live huh. in Chicago. <laughs> we could find one literally within a block um, right now. I think I, it, that's I, how I we met, Mike. See, uh, <laughs> when when timeout was still open, I felt like that was about half the clientele. Oh, like pretty much, yeah. Without the hunkiness, of course, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there. This is a very realistic outlet for a lot of people that deal with trauma or pain or anxiety. So again, it's, actually, the last time I was in Chicago, we were at was it the Liberty Lounge or something. Yeah, it was it's the Liberty Lounge. Western. And everyone was playing pool. And there was that guy who I, I actually thought looked a little like Stephen King. And he was kind of funny and charming in the beginning of the night. And he was playing pool. But at, he just got shit faced as the night went on. Yeah. And he wasn't being like annoying. He was just being kind of like a zombie. Just like sort of wandering through everything. Do you guys remember the, the dude I'm talking about? Yeah. Was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But he, he very much is like that for me. Like just you saw the whole trajectory of the night of him going from being this lively kind of funny guy to just kind of a, a deadbeat in the space of a, a couple hours. That's that. That's who it reminds me most of. But I don't know if y'all have other stories about that. No, but I, I mean, I, no, I don't. I don't think I've ever really met someone like that. Except, I mean, I've I've met some belligerent drunks, obviously, but no one where I thought that person's probably gonna kill themselves tonight. Do you know what I mean? Like, like just scary, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. And that and that guy probably. That well, was he was. Yeah, I mean, that, that was something <laughs> yeah. else. But but I also I also think it's interesting to point out that so far we have Ben who's like leaning heavy heavy on the drinks. We had Richie, who's leaning heavy on the powder, and we have uh, Stan, who's uh, it takes a lot of baths. <laughs> Wait, but Richie, though, I thought I well later in the book he mentions how he had done coke, but I got that he was saying take a powder like like I'm gonna disappear. Right? Yeah. Oh like, yeah, that's yeah, I, I know. I'm just but he but he does do silly. he he reveals later on he has been doing a little bit a little bit of the devil's dandruff uh, oh. for sure. <laughs> hey, he's in uh he's in California. Why, why, why wouldn't he? I know? You know? And it's the eighties. Everybody's doing it. Everyone's it was the doing cool it. thing to do, Dan. Get with cowboys. Yeah. Hey, just ask the guy who wrote this novel, huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
Cocaine Cowboys. Cocaine awesome. Cowboys. But yeah. what do we you what know. do we learn about Ben? We learned that he's, he's uh, an architect. He's an architect. And a very unconventional architect too. But a, mm-hmm. a popular architect though, right? Yeah. We yeah. get a little, we get a little King's Dominion with him too, but you know. Yeah. He, it, uh, he he did become an architect. And when I say he did become an architect, we don't even really know why he loves building things yet. So that comes but, into factor uh heavily into the story. Yeah. Uh, specifically yeah. with the barons. Very true. Um, but he's down there you know, uh, rooting to in Texas, right? You That's, he's a bachelor? He is I a thought he was in Utah or somewhere. I can't remember. Did they say what, what state it is? Or is he in Texas in, the, in this chapter? It says that although Hanscom's roots were in New England and he had gone to college in California, there was more than a touch of the extravagant Texans, Texan about him. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, hey, maybe maybe I'll go say hi to him down at my local watering hole. Um, yeah, you yeah we know see he's him. a bachelor. He's very handsome too, right? Like he, he's described as being uh, very youthful and, and handsome. I've heard of Ben Hanscom, but Ben oh, Handsome, that's what he's transform, transformed into. Well, <laughs> Ben's a good-looking guy, good-looking dude now. We see, um, the, we see the scar on his belly, and he tells Ricky Lee a, a little bit about how he used to be bigger and how they ran from Henry. We, I don't feel like we don't, we, really don't, we don't really get into the interiority of Ben as adult. We just kind of see him shaken and drinking and reminiscing. Right, right. Oh, no, I take it back. He actually is in Nebraska. Yeah, but we'll get into that a little later. As uh, there's a there's like some great well, that's the, yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the, the King's, the King's Dominion, Dominion there. Yeah, so but uh, he's not in Derry. No, just like the other losers aren't. But so we know he's an alcoholic, and he gives the bartender. Do we, I don't. Do we know he's an alcoholic? I don't think we know he's an alcoholic. I, I think I he's think drinking he's a ton in, right now. Yeah, I got that. He was just drinking that night. Um, I think. Yeah. I like to think he's an alcoholic. I like to think he's an alcoholic also. <laughs> I mean, it remains to be seen, but I think that someone that can drink that much and still operate the way that he does he's, going forward, way, I think. He does it because of the lemon juice. That's the only reason he's able to do it. I, 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 look, I really look, want guys to drunk, believe that he's right? an alcoholic. All right. Can we just like, give him that? Um, all right. He's a booze hound. He's a booze hound. Well, well, all right. He likes so to be in the bottom. Maybe, maybe we'll, again, this is what we think at this point in the story. <laughs> Based off of this, I think he's a drunk. I think he is too. I, I'm calling him Ben the Bottle Hanscom. Um, oh my god! <laughs> seems very friendly with Ricky Lee. Yeah, uh, you know, did, did you, did, I know Ricky Lee's married with kids, but did you guys get the idea that Ricky Lee was maybe in in love a little bit with Ben? I don't know. That that came across. No. Me. What? No. I thought. I thought. Dad, I don't know. He, did, he seemed to really admire him. Like like look. look I don't know. Maybe fine. Hey, look, you want to believe he's an alcoholic? I believe that uh, there's an attraction there. So there's no rules. Hey, to each his own, yeah. I guess. Everyone's <laughs> canon in this chapter is that Ricky Lee is closeted and then Ben is an alcoholic. Okay. Oh, We're man. rewriting the book. We're rewriting it. Uh, that's that's the let's, benefit of being on the let's opening. Let's move episode. on to Eddie. Well, wait a second, though. We do find out that from this chapter that he was, in his own words, a butterball. Growing up, which we knew that already because yeah. of what Richie had told him, but we find out that he was also tortured by Bell Chuggins, Victor Chris, and Henry Bowers. So he's also harbors those fears for sure. Mm-hmm. So the things they carry, just like that, <laughs> just like that story we all had to read in high school. Old uh, Tim, Tim O'Brien, old Tim O'Brien. Well, th- there is something important <laughs> that does happen though, uh, because Ben gives the coins over. Oh yeah, yeah, bartender. yeah. Do you want to silver dollars? Yeah, that's right. silver dollars, and we don't know why that's important yet. Mm-hmm. But they're definitely introduced. They are introduced. So, um, why he gives away those uh, silver dollars? I know, those, I know, right? Like, you don't think you might want to take those? Would you yeah. want those? You know, that's know like you, that's like using your you, flute for Super Mario Three on like. But level I don't know two if he remembers. Something. I don't think he remembers yet why they're important well, or why you know what I mean. Like, 
That would have been hilarious if there's like, and not this isn't a spoiler because if you're reading, if you're listening to this this episode, yeah, you, you, you already know have the goddamn it. story already. <laughs> but I know like, we're acting like this is like all. I mean, I, I agree we should keep it compartmentalized, but yeah, yes, it, it, all yes. these listeners and we know it's. But know I, I would have loved a situation where they're like they're down in like the sewer, and it's almost like an RPG where you're like if you don't, you can't actually get to the sec- the other part of the sewer because that he doesn't have those the, the the coins. It's like oh, you didn't pick up those coins in the first <laughs> level. <laughs> so he has to go all the way back to gotta go back to Ricky Lee and get the coins. Ricky, hey, uh, Ricky, R- Ricky, are you? Uh, Ricky moved away here a long time ago, and then you have like oh my god, oh, Ricky's been dead for five years. It's like another ghost story. <laughs> <laughs> and like the coins are just sitting there on the table. It's like, whoa, okay. Um, Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I got a cold. I got a shiver. I'm sneezing. My hair itches. My my skin is feeling all scraggly and I have an obnoxious wife. Who am I? Bill Denbro. Hey! <laughs> Real quick. Eddie. The, um, the way... Ed- the way Eddie talks about both his mother and his wife in this chapter, it ties back to that thing, Mike, if you you said about how King writes about overweight people. It's mm-hmm. like that weird monstrous oh, kind please. of thing. Yes. When we get oh, to the God. misery section, it's... Oh, boy. <laughs> it, it was like Mrs. White all over again. But anyway, I just wanted to plant that seed a little bit. It was bit. like the it's word awful. processor of the gods uh, again, yeah. honestly. That's what it reminded That's me of right. for sure. Um, uh, all right. I'm going to say this right now because I can. Eddie's stuff throughout not only this section but the rest of the book i was the least interesting to me yeah i don't know why but let's continue all right well hey uh sorry Brad caffrey down there um <laughs> yeah thanks a lot for making me the coolest loser guys <laughs> sorry pal hey, you guys already, you already, already told me i wasn't a loser enough yeah defined, defined by his sickness i actually do i don't know i like the way that king describes all the medications it, it become it has this obsessive quality to it where he talks about them lined up like soldiers and just yeah. i i don't know i i I would say this. I don't think Eddie is the least interesting. I, I do think Eddie is interesting. I don't know if he's the most likable loser, at least right off the bat. As, as I think as we, we get to know more about him as a kid, yes. But, hey, no, no one likes a hypochondriac. Am I right? Everyone All right, you know there? what? Fuck no. you, because I am a hypochondriac. I took some really fun photos for uh, our, all our listeners out there of my uh, my cabinet that it's just filled with vitamins uh, nonstop. And it takes me three minutes if I'm really rushing in the morning to finish all my vitamins, I, I felt that Eddie is, he's very cartoonish to me yeah. and, and that's coming from a hypochondriac. I just felt that they embellish this, the, these kind of stereotypes about that type of person that, mm-hmm. that the helicopter uh, parent that would somehow influence the child to lean heavily on having a mother that's so similar to the mother that it's almost the same character. You know, it just, it, it felt too, tall tale to me 
in in a way. And, and but how I think is that's this any different than like Bev's situation. Well, it's I, not, and it's, we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, yeah, it's a portrayal as well. <laughs> okay. and, and, I, I think also Eddie is presented as being the the weakest out of all the adults we meet. He has the least amount of mystique around him. He doesn't have he doesn't have any of like the quiet solidity that a lot of them do. Like he's he's presented as being the most sort of like nebbish and kind of cloying and 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 worried, which I think that that's part of it also maybe. And I think it's frustrating because we as readers know that his asthma is psychosomatic, but it kind of disrupts things a lot and you are supposed to kind of take it seriously when the characters do but you know that like if eddie could just fucking get in a right mind like he wouldn't be having this like panic breathing attack and let's be real like if you knew al pacino uh aka the greatest actor of all time <laughs> is going to be your client the next day i don't care if pennywise the clown is ravaging through your parents <laughs> and your your other siblings you are staying in town and you're going to drive that motherfucker oscar winner all around, and at this time he wasn't Oscar winner yet because Son of Woman hadn't come out. Hoo-ha. Well, not to go, but, on, not to go on too much of a tangent. Where do you think Al Pacino was going? Hey, I, I, I gotta say, I think Al Pacino was probably going to the set of Carlito's Way. <laughs> oh, that's one of my—that's like my favorite Al Pacino movie. Wait, now what, this what is. Pennywise is trying to coax Eddie to come back. He's like, sorry, uh, Pennywise, you have to wait. I have an appointment with Mr. Serpico himself. Let's actually figure this out. So this was, uh, what was it? 80, was this 84? Oh 85? Really we have to. Wait, 84. Just real quick. Just real quick. So 84. So at this time, he is working. He just finished Scarface, and he's actually taking a break. he done uh, Revolution. Which was a British oh, historical gosh. drama, but uh, no, this is around the time that Pacino's doing like he's doing like theater. So it, he was probably go, he would probably so he be probably going was to and being from, driven around by Eddie. Yeah, so he he was probably doing all right. So in 1985, Pacino worked on his personal project, the local stigmatic. Guys, I need to eat dinner at six o'clock. I know. I need. We need to get going, but. But so he, at the time he was working on a, a, the local stigmatic, a 1969 off-Broadway play by the English writer Heathcote Williams. He starred in the play, remounting it with director David Wheeler and the Theater Company of Boston in the 50-minute film version. The film was not released theatrically, but was later released as part of the Pacino and Actors Vision, a box set that came out in 2007. So it's very possible that Eddie's wife, who is um, by all accounts a monstrous human being, according to uh, Stephen King. <laughs> who can't fit into her original outfit either, is going to be responsible for getting Al Pacino to... To the Playhouse. To the Playhouse to start working on the local stigmatic. All right, well, that's good. I'm glad we figured that out. Yeah, um, can you timestamp this section for our listeners? Oh, so we will absolutely <laughs> do that. Oh, yeah, we, we got that. Starts and ends. All right, uh, what else do we want to talk about with Eddie? Yeah, we, what, other than his overbearing wife slash remnants of his mother... Uh, he takes. He's got a lot. He's also, of, his 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 bathroom is filled with all sorts of goodies, though. Well, he's not thrilled to go back either. No, <laughs> no, he's, he's not. <laughs> he loves he loves his wife, though. He does like, love he his wife, despite does her, love her despite her monstrous behavior. Um, I guess I guess Eddie. I always kind of liked Eddie because he his his marginalization is so exterior. It's all from his mother, which is, like is not his fault. And then he is so stalwart. He's such a good sidekick, despite the fact that he is thought of as the smallest and maybe weakest of them. Um, I can't help but root for Eddie. All right. Out of look, he's got a big heart. He may be small in stature, but he's got an enormous heart. So fuck you guys. Eddie's uh, great. You are, you are, you do have a big heart, uh, Dan, but you are also the oh, last thanks. hypochondriac out of all of us in, in all that of this true. that he has here. All right. So here's the stuff that he has. Cario Pactate, Bepto-Bismol, Preparation H, 
some tucks. I don't know what that is. Formula four They're wipes wipes for your butt. Oh really? Oh interesting. Formula forty four for the coughs. Nyquil and Dristan for the colds. A big bottle of castor oil. Isn't castor oil was also in the body anyway? Um, tiny tin of sucrets. Uh, chloroseptic, sepical, sepastat in the spray bottle. Uh, visine and murine, cortate and neosporin, L-lysine, oxywash, oxy five. There is a coltar shampoo. I have some of that. There's a Valium, Percodent, Elevil, Darvon. What would you have out of this cabinet that you would probably take with you traveling? Uh, out of the essentials. What do you travel with? I mean, I, uh, I tend to go with uh, Pepto-Bismol sometimes if, yeah, if I get sick. Uh, Pepto is probably uh, the, the, the thing that everybody has. All right. Anything else on uh, Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> Holy Christ. You know, it's important. To, to I think it's clear. Guy has a problem. All right, he does have a problem, but he also has, uh, you know, he's got an asthma. Does anyone here have asthma? No, yeah. no, but my a lot of people in my family do, and it's scary. I have asthma. I guess I really would be a Eddie, but whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, Mike, why don't we get to switch? I'll be the funny guy. You can be fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the contract nerd. Well, hey, guess what? I was voted that. So, uh, oops. Anyway, let's so go. To what the next what do we feel about this title of of the? Um, I guess it's not really chapter five, but part five, Beverly Rogan takes a whooping. Isn't that a little, considering material source here, material, it's a little like, really? <laughs> like, I mean, phrase yeah, that a different that, way. <laughs> uh, t- yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to have to talk about Tom Rogan and, and this. All. I, it does suck that Bev's introduction is so anchored to her being in this abusive relationship. I do think Bev is a strong character and, and that she does get developed well throughout the novel, but it, it, I don't know. Tom is like such a, even without all the stuff he does with Pennywise, eventually he's such a piece of shit that it's like, that was a hard chapter for me to read this time around. Yeah. It's almost uninteresting because of how much of a caricature he is and how much, Yeah, like, I think I said at one point and on an earlier episode that, I loved Beverly because it, it she helped me understand early on in life like why women would stay in an abusive relationship and now I'm like totally rethinking that statement. I mean, I guess we'll see more as the book goes on, but I I just hated this section. Um it's not that I don't even think he's super I mean, I guess maybe he's realistic, but living in that mind for this whole section is just not enjoyable. It's and just a lot. It's a lot to take in this early on, I feel like, you know? I it's know. tough, too, because we really don't, like, at least, and I know that Bev's father is, like, not a great guy, obviously, but, like, there are moments in the, where she's like, I really did love him, and there are moments that she remembers that were, like, sweet, but we never see Tom ever in that light, you know? So it's just like, why are you with this guy, period? And, and in fact, in fact, we don't get him in that light ever. And it's very, very victim blamey. Like the, the insights we do get into their relationship is him saying, you know, some antelope just want to be brought down. And she even freely admits like some part of her craved the humiliation. And I don't like that. That's what we get. I think that's the wrong direction. Um, It can be true, but you, again, yeah, you got to give us something else too. Like, well, she does stand up to him, which is awesome. Yeah, but only now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, we just have to assume the fact that just like Eddie, she falls under the spell of whatever childhood upbringing she had. I mean, right. that's kind of the, the 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 crux that King kind of it's corners like this, his characters into the, to make it and easier. It's so gendered because she's the only woman, and it's like this is how King thinks of women. Like just by default, this is 
loaded more. I like wish there was another female character so that it read well, a little better. Her, to her, me. her best friend. I meant like in the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I feel I, mean, I know I, it's an email. For, for me, it's that like I said, I it, for me, I think it's just because it's the first um, exposure we have to her. Do you know what I mean? And, and I'm not saying there isn't yeah. stuff that's valuable in this chapter because she does fight back and. I think she is ultimately a strong character, but and once again, we're we're talking about this through 2018 lens, right? Um, yes. I think just because, like, right off the bat, we see this like very graphic sex scene that's solely from Tom's point of view, and we just see her getting like constantly abused by mm-hmm. him. It's just, it's just like a lot to stomach, like this early on, and I never felt that way um, the previous times I read it. I think I think just like especially the cultural conversation going on, it just felt like a little icky to me this this time around, totally. at least for the introduction well her first introduction is her breast pressing against tom yeah that's literally the first line like it's it's and she's objectified constantly oh totally know how he thinks about her that the line is just tom was nearly asleep when the phone rang he struggled halfway up leaning toward it and then felt one of beverly's breasts press against his shoulder as she reached over him to get it oh wow beverly i guess that's the character we're gonna know part of me feel well that's why and she's a lady (laughs) we get and we get a lot of tom here because obviously he shows back up later and the same Mm -hmm. thing with audra but but that again, that's why I think you know where's Patty Uris and all this. <laughs> we spend a lot of time with her, and she never comes back. But yeah, I think that they do spend a little bit too much time on Tom and how he perceives Bev. When really we should be getting Bev. Here's the other problem with how he perceives her is that it's so on the nose. Like he's an incredibly self-aware abuser. Like he's like, it's about power, and if she doesn't notice me, then I might as well not be real. And that to me is again like just so. It's so annoyingly on the nose that it does border on cartoonish for me. Yeah. Like, it's just not interesting. And it's just gross to live there. <laughs> like, it makes, yeah. It also makes me wonder if, like, Chicago is this really awful place for King. Because they're in Chicago. <laughs> and then Pet Cemetery, the oh the, yeah, the parents are in Chicago as well. And, um, you know, it just seems to be this, like, maybe Chicago did King wrong at one point. Mm, Chicago's got a great skyline, though. They do have a great sky. I, I was they got some great to, hot dogs. I was trying to visualize, like, sort of, because they, they live downtown, right, in Chicago. And I guess, like, <laughs> I, I, mean, I guess, like, anyone I know who would, like, want to live downtown or, like, can afford to live downtown, I'm just like, yeah, the, the, like, I just picture them as total yuppies, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Apologies to anyone who lives downtown. I mean, I love, downtown Chicago is awesome, but, like, there's a very specific personality type, I think, that um, at least in the 80s, like in the fashion industry, is going to want to live there, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. it was, it, I, this it was, is I also Chicago in the 80s, which might have been, comp- I, I don't know what that was like, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. I also hate that she grew up to be a dress designer. Like, there's no hints of that in the rest of the, I know we're not supposed to be talking about that no, stuff, no, but like, no, she's right. so cool and like does a lot of cool, unique stuff as a child, and everyone else gets to kind of extend their childhood talents. And it's like, oh yeah, I guess she does fashion. Like, ugh. ugh. Yeah, I got you there. That that is a little strange because there isn't really. They don't really. I, I'm really curious what they do uh, with the film, but uh, I keep bringing that up. But I it, it, no, it's funny. I'm I'm starting to realize kind of a trend as we talk about these adult chapters, which once again I overall really do like. I think I I'd love the reveal of information how we start things off. It is funny that I feel like we have a more negative reaction towards a lot of these characters as adults than we do as children when we, when we get to know them later on. And I don't know if that was intentional necessarily in King, but I think that does play a lot into the novel's themes of like them maybe not not becoming the versions of themselves that they had always imagined. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like I, th- I think they're just much more endearing characters as their children. Uh, 
perhaps much like the real world uh, as well. Maybe we just all become sour pieces of shit when we, when we grow up. Yeah, but at least Ben got to be an architect and Bill got to be a writer and et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. That's, true. Yeah, that's true too. Like in terms of professions, the, I mean, she's successful still, but it's not like, and, and it'd be one thing if we saw her, because yeah, we don't really see any any hints of her being a designer or a... And in fact, she's always portrayed as very tomboyish in how she dresses. So what do you think she should, what would have been a more optimal um, profession, do you think, based on what we know from her as a child? Um, maybe like she she's well, I don't want to get back far into what we know in the future. OK, that's I'd have to I'd have yeah. to think about but maybe something thought. that has to do with the slingshot. Like maybe she's an Olympic archer um, <laughs> or, or like oh, a, yeah. a marksman or something, you know? Yeah. yeah. Or I guess that would be a marksman. Or mar- yeah. Marksperson. What if she was like a criminal investigator and then she came back yeah! and then like took over that the actually, entire thing? You know, Mrs. Sloan. That would actually be perfect because it'd be so uncomfortable to be in an abusive relationship while thinking that you were doing this great shit hunting bad people down like that's yeah. complicated and, and interesting well it is a very calculated move on king's behalf to focus a lot on uh, you know tom because he is going to become a major factor later on you're not going to be able to have standalone chapters of him per se you know it's not gonna be like yeah. you know dick halloran where you see him hanging around you know south florida you're not gonna see like tom making a sandwich being like where's my goddamn wife like you know it's just you know, it's just <laughs> You, so you do need to like do some kind of like legwork here, which I think I mean, he does. You, do, you, you know, do we get, get some, a little mini chapter with Tom. I mean, I've met a lot of assholes in my <laughs> life, including been related to him. But um, I, so I, I, I do feel like what we get with Tom here is enough for you to be like, oh man, I hate this guy. Fuck yeah. him. Well, I'm, I, I do genuinely worry that he's like out there, like you know what I mean. Like uh, you're concerned that he's going to show up, again. like the crate monster in the creep show. Oh yeah. All right. Speaking of crate monsters, creep show, uh, how do those come exist? Uh, how do they? How do they come? Well, they were to be written horror by a writers, writer. <laughs> and we know a horror writer by the name of Bill Dembro. He's back, the kid that made the boat for Georgie. Oh my God, he's a major character. <laughs> no, in this. this says Bill Dembro takes time out, and all I could think of is like Zach Morris. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, well, it's my turn to time tell out. my story. Hi. It's it, this is this is my favorite of the calls, just because yeah. I love that King gets to go off on uh, the whole inside baseball of writing and go off on the, 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 the kind of professorial outlook on genre fiction. And th- oh, th- that, that stuff yeah. was great. And there's uh-huh. some lines in here that if you're a writer in undergrad, I would absolutely use these as excuses I or mantras. I can remember reading this for the first time and just being like incredibly emboldened and incredibly reassured. But when I read it this time, I was like, cringing like it was so transparent that i that i was it like is. steve <laughs> i mean he literally lists all his his influences like edgar Allan poe hp lovecraft richard mathis it's yeah not me. it's so transparently you know. a self-insert and that is gross to me <laughs> like i the lesson i agree with i guess but it, it just reading it as a member of this podcast and at this age and being where i am in my mfa program i was just like Oh boy, <laughs> it's it's a lot. It's very King being King. Most we've ever seen. Press. Yeah, you could have just made up a different publisher. <laughs> and he even says, but he likes Vikings ship logo, and that makes it as good a place to start it as any. As it turns out, the first stop is also the last stop. Viking purchases the book. It reminds me of like Brett Gelman 
Uh, I don't know if you've watched, like listened to <laughs> yeah, Comedy Bang Bang. For Justice, uh, Justice it, for All. Yeah, like his little tirade about Justice for All, which he makes his own play, and it's like this very self righteous like sort of diatribe. It reminds me of that big time. It's like but, a thinly veiled, like glorified version of himself. And yes. so, it's so, fucking funny. <laughs> so it's almost like Ben Mears made incarnate in a weird way. So, but, but I still loved it because I, yeah. I agree with so much of it, and it was kind of a way for him to like connect with the people that he knew were going to read this book. Um, uh, this is a cool character. I like this Bill Denborough. Bill is a good guy. He's doing real well. Yeah. Some of his books are being turned into films. Yeah. And who's in the and, films? Uh, his, his wife. I was going to say his late wife would make no sense. No, it wouldn't make his sense. W- <laughs> his wife, Audra. Um, he's, uh, how is he looking, though, these days? Uh, he doesn't look like uh, Richard Thomas. He doesn't and look definitely like doesn't look Thomas. like James McAvoy. Or Stephen King. <laughs> or Stephen King. No, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's gaining a little weight. He's uh, losing some hair. Um, she's also five years older than him, which for some reason bears mentioning as an age difference, quote unquote. <laughs> oh, he's like landing those older ladies. Uh, I think I picture him like a bud court. <laughs> 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 like life aquatic bud court. Yeah. Uh, I was picturing more like uh, Arliss Howard. That, 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 okay. that seemed accurate to me. <laughs> I always picture him like Arliss from HBO's Arliss. Oh, um, Robert, 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 uh, Robert Wool. Uh, how about a grant, uh, Wayne? Um, but there are parts of here that I felt in terms of the exposition, I thought was really weird. Audra's like, I know you had a brother and that you loved him very much and that he died. Who the fuck would ever say that? I know that <laughs> I know that you grew up in a town called Derry, moved to Bangor about two years ago, but your brother died and moved to Portland when you were 15. I know your dad died of lung cancer when you're 17. This is so insane for exposition. Who is going to regurgitate all this information to you? He literally asks her. He's like, tell me everything. It's so, <laughs> it's, it's so weak. Like She's an actress. She's great at memorizing facts and things. And <laughs> hey, just, I like you know. fun facts. I like Hollywood <laughs> facts. I like every type of facts, but this is a little too much Is for she me. British in this? She has... She is, yeah. yeah okay, I okay. do, I do think like I know we're tearing apart some of the individual writing. I do, I do like all the stuff we find out about the Bill, and I. I oh, no, she isn't really... British, actually. They explicitly mentioned that. Sorry, apologies. But yeah, but like I, I do think it's an effective tactic to have him be. I, I think we know that he's going to be important because he is the only one that we see as a kid, both a kid and an adult, before we get to the June stuff. So like, I like that tactic a lot, and I think, and I. I just enjoy the parallels and hearing a little bit of this information about Georgie and whatever else that we've already seen. I don't know. I think it's an effective. Well, he's chapter, also the, although, yeah. he's also the furthest away from the whole surroundings. Like, I mean, and you, and you know that he was the closest yeah. to the, the so far at this point, we know that he's the closest to the terror because it was his brother that died. So it makes sense that he would be the furthest from everyone. I mean, he's all the way in the South of England. He's overseas. Yeah. Totally. yeah. He's across the pond, as we say. Now, I, <laughs> does, <laughs> Bill starts to get his stutter back. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it have been more interesting if Eddie didn't was not a hypochondriac anymore, and that he st- then all of a sudden he just started having these like needs. That's a good you point. Know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, why I think it's interesting that that is what comes back to Bill. Like, whereas everybody else just kind of seems to just have the memories, but they don't revert to like. The and if like Ben, people well, they're they stuck were. in patterns. Yeah. Still, and yeah. like Bill is kind of working it out by writing obliquely about it like they're all wrestling with their fears in ways that that they don't really know like that it's just like innately it's like being unconscious yeah like it would have been cool if like ben sat down for a hamburger and then like he ate it and then all of a sudden he like noticed it like i was like oh weird my my jeans feel tighter and he just starts (laughs) getting like fatter as the pages the opposite of thinner instead of drinking Um, he's just eating a lot yeah 
I like um, how their relationship is portrayed. Like, you can tell it's a good one. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, nice. It's loving. Despite the fact that we get the, like, oh, he's also boning his agent a while back. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is a little weird, too. Oh, wait. Is there... King loves to uh, just, like, slip in adultery. Uh, wait, was, it, was he saying that... No, 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 no. That's oh, okay. before before Audra. What what book was it? Pet Cemetery Cujo, where they like casually mentioned the main character. Pet Cemetery. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like so one weird. sentence. This is where it really feels like the Brett Gelman thing when he talks to his agent. Like the, his agent is a small woman named Susan Brown. She is exactly five feet tall. She is violently energetic and even more violently empathetic. Don't do it, Billy. She tells him, "Kiss it off." They've got a lot of money tied up in it, and they'll get someone good to do the screenplay. Maybe even Goldman. Who? William Goldman, the only good writer who ever went out there and did it both. What are you talking about, Susie? He stayed there and he stayed good. The odds on both are like the odds of beating lung cancer. It can be done, but who wants to try? You'll burn out on sex and booze or some of the nifty new drugs. <laughs> I think, and the, that's like the, in, uh, special. That's like in, uh, in, in, in the Brett Gelman thing, one of the devices he has is that he carries around a copy of Lenny Bruce's autobiography. That talks to him? And then he would just say, it's like, it's like, hey, Brett, you're doing great. Everyone up here thinks so. Not just me, but Jimi Hendrix. And, yeah. like, <laughs> and then at the end, he's like, he's like, like Brett Gellman's like, oh, what, you know, what do I do, Letty? He's like, just do what you always do, Brett. Shine. Shine. <laughs> so and it's just so oh, ridiculous because it's like, I, I, it's like, okay, was he, was he trying to appeal to William Goldman here or something like that? I mean, it's just oh. odd. I mean. It's it's a little it's it's bizarre, which is funny because he would go on to adapt. Um, I think it's Misery he does. Yeah, he uh, he went on to adapt Misery. So at that point, he hadn't done any of uh, Stephen King's works. But maybe uh, maybe his little mention here is why he uh... <laughs> he read, he's like get me King. <laughs> <laughs> he's like I gotta do it. I'm just I'm I, some prestige. I just did an uncredited rewrite on Twins, but I gotta get something good. <laughs> oh, what's this new book by um, Stephen King? I think he's a fan of me. Give well. All right. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> getting yes. back, getting Sorry. back to Bill, and Bill and the and the crew. We all know that they decide to head back, mm-hmm. except for Stan. Except for Stan, Stan decides uh, to head to the the um, <laughs> death. He, he um, decides to shuffle off, ascend to the heavens. Well, yeah, and there's one. There's uh, one other person who doesn't have to head back because he's already there. Oh, that's yes. right. Mike can't Mike Hanlon. And he doesn't he doesn't get a phone call. You know why? Because he's the one making the calls. Um, <laughs> and we are finally to Derry the call and response. <laughs> Derry the first interlude. Yeah. And this is all Hanlon. This I, is this is 100% yeah. Hamlin. This is 100% except Hamlin. For, except for the weird italicized intro to it, but yeah. That's yeah, that, I guess that is true. Who's true. saying this? <laughs> I like to think it's Clive Barker. Uh, <laughs> because on the first page of the interlude, uh there's a little quote here from Clive. Oh, so I, love I thought Clive. It, he was really into Clive Barker at the time apparently. Here, I'll read it as Clive Barker. Okay, let's hear. What's what's your impression of right. Clive Barker? Uh, how many uh, human eyes had uh, snatched glimpses of their secret anatomies <clears throat> down the passages of years. So you're going with Clive these days. Clive yeah. Post, uh, yeah. yeah. He, he's a very rich British voice. That's, that, that is Clive voice. That's, from, like, my, uh, that's from my book, uh, Books of Blood. Um, I had the uh, the pleasure of seeing Clive at the music box. Yeah. Uh, I think he was interested. I think he was talking about... Uh, he was talking Hellraiser, but then he was talking about Midnight Meat well, It was Midnight Meat Train, but it was for Hellraiser yeah. screening, yeah. 
all those years. He, uh, he, I love Clyde Barker at like talkbacks. He's one of the most yeah. charismatic, interesting uh, authors, I think, in that well, regard. He, he's a good omniscient oh, narrator. I like his writing. Yeah, he's great. And he always has these strange dragon pants that he wears. <laughs> he wears like, <laughs> oh, now I'm even, now I'm even more weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, white, like bell-bottom dragon pants. The eyes of the dragon. Love what, Barker. So what do we think about this first interlude, though? What What is talked about here and what what did you guys well, like? It's interesting because the other interludes I feel like get much more specific, but we keep talking about how this whole this whole section, this whole episode is about prelude, and I feel like that's the way this interlude functions also. He kind of he even says like this is what these interludes are going to be, and then we hear a little bit about we almost hear more about like what Pennywise has been up to in the missing years. I mean, we don't get specific, but we hear about some of the the people who the kids who have died. So like, I don't know, I think it's just like a good like seed planting um tool of horror in this i mean it's not especially memorable but i think it's effective uh, what do you guys think though i remember being so bored by the interludes when i was a kid and they're like they're like my favorite thing now oh my god i love them that this is because i just love all the history in it and i, I just want more of it i mean it's terrifying they're yeah. really scary coming off the the jolted first phone calls of all the people and then kind of the introductions Going into this, and I'm just going to read a little bit here on page 147 of the Scribner. Uh, can an entire city be haunted? Like, first of all, <laughs> like, I'm just going to stop there. Great line. Yeah, it is a great line. <laughs> and it does harken back to that Salem's Lot thing, you know, like we're, mm-hmm. we're really setting the pace here. And I agree with Mel. Now, I didn't read these, obviously, when I was younger, but even even the miniseries, all of the uh, all of the stuff with Mike, uh, especially the end, the, all of the stuff at the very end when he's talking about uh, his narration. I, I just I love this character and the fact that we get these and we get these little deep dives with him. It's perfect. It's great. I love Hanlon, and I love that we learn a lot about him here. He he's a librarian. Uh, he true. went down the road to uh, <laughs> the University of Maine, where he studied. So he didn't go too far. Um, and then he came back. Uh, he likes to flirt with his coworkers, but doesn't really go anywhere with it. Uh, he wakes up in the middle of the night with night terrors. Uh, he likes to have uh, a glass of water next to his bed during the middle of the night, which is something I do. And more importantly, he is really interested in uh, oral history and it's going to come in handy when he uh, needs to tell all the losers why they're back and he knows everything about Pennywise at that point. So he really takes up ownership of being uh, the old knight, as I said before, and he he is the knight of the story. He's doing double duty too, because I feel like he, at this point, readers are maybe asking god if this is happening like this like why doesn't anyone pay attention to it and mike is like look i have the stats and people just don't care and that's like part of the vibe of the town well Um, one of the main instances in which he brings up the the town like disappearing the 340 mm -hmm. settlers yeah Mm -hmm. like the roanoke sort of situation yeah i think also because mike is because he has stayed in Derry and at this point in the book, he has not really repressed the memories in the same way the other losers has. He just has a strength and a resolve and a soberness to him What in his, in his tone. You know what I mean? Like, we don't get some of the more frantic elements that seem to appear in all the other characters. See, so yeah, I think he is just this kind of, like, welcome breath of fresh air. When oh, yeah. It's super yeah. comforting to be like, okay, someone who knows what's going on. Um, this is, to me, I felt this was um, really where the story begins. In that you actually get the the I agree. It, it, it feels as if like you really it's like understand. the end of the prelude. It's like yes. it's like we're gonna we're moving forward now. I, I think. Yeah, and and he gets you know King really sinks his teeth into the themes of this book, 
in this section specifically. And some of the best writing about the themes of this book are in this section, I feel. You know, he, he talks about, you know, what is right? How is a town right? Like, what does right mean to you? Like, what is good? You know, like, what, what, what do we consider, like, happy, good, bad? I mean, like, it's also subjective. And we always try to think of good town as being this objective thing. But really, it's how much fear and how much, how much uh, ignorance you can have in your life to have that sort of rightness to make it feel as if things are right. And in that respect, I think there's a lot about the whole connectivity between friends that's here and what friends mean and what does it mean to stay back. And there's, there's a in lineage. I, I, there's just a lot in this short interlude. Yeah. And it makes me think at this point, I'm reading it, rereading it, just being like, man, Mike Hanlon really is one of the more interesting characters because not only does he, he come from like this sort of hyper-literate background, but he's a conduit to the actual town itself because I know this sounds like, you know, we always make a joke about saying this, but Derry is a character in itself. You know, if we're talking about heroes and villains still, we've been talking about that for over two hours now. I feel like Derry speaks through Mike. And so, you know, almost more about Derry through Mike than actual Mike himself. And that almost speaks to Mike as a character in itself, that he's lost himself because of this town. Like he, they're almost like the same person at that point well, because yeah. he hasn't lived a life. He's he devoted his entire life to the town. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, my, that's my, uh, my two cents on Mike Hanlon. Love him. And uh, you know, have we, uh, is that all the, is that all the heroes and villains? Have we clear, cleared them out? Yeah. And at least for this section. And to, yeah. to end that section and all the, the our heroes, I and guess we can talk about dairy as a character in itself on later episodes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I just want to read the, the last section here of this, of this section. Oh, go for it. Send um, us home. Send us home. If anything else happens, anything at all, I'll make the calls. I'll have to. In the meantime, I have my su- suppositions, uh, my broken rest and my, my memories, my damned memories. Oh, and one other thing. I have this notebook, don't I? The wall I wail to. And here I sit, my hand shaking so badly I can hardly write in it. Here I sit in the de- deserted library after closing, listening to faint sounds in the dark stacks, oh, watching the shadows thrown by the dim yellow globes to make sure they don't move, don't change. Here I sit next to the telephone. I put my free hand on it, let it slide down, touch the holes in the dial that could put me in touch with all of them, my old pals. We went deep together. We went into the black together. Would we come out of the black if we went in a second time? I don't think so. Please, God, I don't have to call them. Please, God. So good. That's awesome. I love it. Some great inner conflict there. And we're going to find out more about him. Yeah, because this, this is not the last Heroes and Villains section that we're going to have. We have about <laughs> <What's not>? four <laughs> more well, we <laughs> coming up. Characters will probably be in every single one of them, too. Uh, oh, Lord. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about what we love and what we hate about these Heroes and Villains, but let's talk about what we hate about the book so far. <laughs> in a section we like to call Misery. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? All right. Well, we've already talked about a lot of our griefs with uh, several facets of the book through the previous sections and mm-hmm. all, but what really sticks out to you so far in this first part? I think for me, the biggest 
instance of my misery was what Dan already mentioned and how Myra is treated by just the narrative. I think it's one of those things where King is trying so hard to make the, make the reader think that he doesn't hate fat people. Like she's a person, but it doesn't work. He just wants to talk about how fat they are. And um, it's like three whole pages. Yeah. At least this is on page 93 of my Scribner edition. At least he had believed then it was for the final time. Home again, home again, jiggity jog, home again, home again with Myra the hog. A hog she was, but um, Sorry. She, but it's like a nursery rhyme. I'm not even done. A hog she was, but she was a sweet hog and he loved her. <laughs> there had really been no chance for him at all. Mm. Like, oh my God. He says hog is such like a specific word. You know? It's like even more so than pig. It's like. I, oh it kind of reminds me of like the scary stories to tell in the dark. The hog. The, yeah. With the hog thing. I don't know. I love the sig soggy, like my brother hog taking the jog or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, I well, agree. She with was you an now. enormously large woman. Um that that you know, that's uh, an extremely large woman. Yeah, that's my my grievance with is probably with that. Uh we've already for me, I've gone over the problems I had with mm-hmm. with uh with the book. I there's not a lot of outright misery in this section except for some poorly written parts, I think, but yeah, I mean, for we've me, already was, gone over them for me, at least. Yeah, that exposition with Audrey and Bill is pretty much my most glaring example for yeah. me. Um, and I also had the racist joke that Richie makes highlighted about AIDS and the Haitian girl. Oh, uh, not, not great. Uh, let's yeah, just yeah. say right now, ninety percent of Richie's imitations are incorrect. <laughs> right uh, in once, his day once and he age. gets to the uh, the Gone with the Wind Ooh. Butler, whoever he plays, oh, like yeah. the locks and butler. Oh my god, Jesus! Anyway. Um, Dan, did you have anything specific that you um, hate about it? <laughs> no, I'm glad. I'm glad Mel read uh, a specific uh, <laughs> Myra Cast practice. Yeah, yeah. Sweet hog. <laughs> sweet hog. I love the idea. Oh, she was his hog. <laughs> she was his hog. What a cute hog. I'm going to start no, referring okay. to Dan as the sweet hog. Did I tell you guys, I, I taught my students that section of Don's Macabre. I had them read the section on fat people so we could talk Let's about it. Oh, wow. It, it, it is it, it's such a it's, it's such a weird fascination of Kings, even from Carrie. Like, and I actually love the way, I, I do love Margaret White as a character, but the way he, I think Mike brought up like when we did that episode back in the day, like how just right away he's like describing her in the same way you would describe like Grendel's mother or something, mm-hmm. just these like fold, folds of flesh. He, he, yeah. he applies very inhuman characteristics to people who are fat. Um, I, yeah. I just don't want to, yeah, what so are we supposed to get out of that? Like, I mean, he clearly loves her. He's and he want we want to show that it could have just hard. been an overbearing woman like his mother. It didn't have to I be get, that. Yeah, I don't understand I just, why they did that either. I mean, it's not what what is the source of it though? Like, I mean, it's supposed to be. You shouldn't he be conflictive in leaving her? I guess maybe it's supposed to show that he's worried that his job could totally, or his business or his enterprise could totally be jeopardized by having this woman be there. I, I don't know. I mean, I, just, I part of me wonder. I mean, who? I, Maybe I'm I'm totally being like an armchair psychologist here, but I who I don't with Stephen King's own mother who he loved very much was she overweight? Does it? I wonder if it almost just comes from some kind of weird like compulsion or something in his own life because it's so prevalent in all of his works. I mean I don't know I don't want to like psychoanalyze him or anything, but I guess yeah. well I let's guess spend, I let's, spend, let's I, spend the next hour trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, we yeah. could do a whole episode on it. I'm yeah. just saying. Well, we'll do yeah. a we'll do a, a special Myra centric episode. It's getting a little chilly in here. Oh God! Wait a second. Are we going to the Dairy Cemetery? I think we are. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes 
that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. We're early into this book. There's a not lot. Not a lot of, uh, I was going to say not a lot of like true blue cemetery moments, right? In this in the first uh, section. We got some creepy yeah, moments. I disagree. Oh, we got some yeah. iconic moments. I don't necessarily think that Georgie opening is, is terrifying per se. Oh, really? I do. That's that was like my number yeah, one. I think it's really That's scary. <laughs> for me, it's all the stuff that you don't, that you just kind of have to like use your imagination on. Like, so for me, it was like the first interlude is the stuff that really creeped me out. When you start hearing about like, you know, the town that disappeared and nobody could find them or, um, you know, the the voice that the old man thought that he heard in the drain and kind of shrugged it off and knowing that that happened after all the things kind of slowed down. So that having the hindsight of knowing that the losers actually do conquer Pennywise in the 50s, but knowing that those voices still exist in the drains yeah, is after that really haunted me. You know? oh, and, it's just, and it's just so old. You get the sense that like, yeah. It's so old. Yeah. Mike yeah. doing his studies is revealing that it's it feels very insurmountable. It's just woven into the fabric of the place. For me, with the George, like because I guess like for me for the cemetery with it, I'm always going to think about the more explicit horrors just because there's so many of them, you know, in this in this novel. Yeah. And I guess the two big ones we get in, in what we're covering today are uh, Georgie, obviously, and then Adrian Mellon. And um, with Georgie, for me, what really freaks me out is we see Pennywise like yank his arm and we, we hear that he dies, but then there's this very brief time jump that jumps to the perspective of the people who found Georgie. And they talk about that knob of white bone. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh. That it, it's, it's not necessarily just the killing of Georgie, but it's that specific jump, how we go from the point of view of a child is dying right to this like grisly discovery that really freaks me out. And then, um, yeah. and then also with Adrian Mellon, Pennywise biting the armpit and looking up at them, but also all the balloons that come out from under the bridge. So those, yes. Not, it, it's like not the whole sequence, but those little moments inside the sequence. I had my little moment from the Adrian Mellon scene is when Don hears him when he's shouting for help. Um, and then it says, help, a very small voice whispered from Don Hyardy's left. And then there was a giggle. And then it comes back again and says, help, the small voice said again. And although the voice was grave, that little giggle followed again. It was like the voice of a child who cannot help itself. And then he looks down and sees Pennywise. Oh, it's creepy as fuck. Yeah, that whole sequence is probably the scariest thing to me. Also, the fact that the balloons have um, uh, the string is a spider web. They mentioned Mm -hmm. that. And I thought that that was interesting, especially later on. Yeah. yeah, the next scary thing for me, oof, uh, Patricia Patricia Bloom and all the uh, the hatred of her Jewishness. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. It's uh, not ever that that's scary not, though. No, no, no. I I mean, well, I, I think the next thing for me is like Stan when he mentions on page fifty two that he has bad dreams. And sometimes he thinks he knows why things are wrong in the world in his life, but he can't remember them. So it's like they, I think they're all having these dreams of, of the past, but they don't remember them when they wake up. So that's even like, you can't even get like a restful sleep, you know? Uh, that's just really creepy. Obviously, Stan's death, the reveal there is really creepy to me. Um, yeah. What about I mean, anybody, anything else? You well, some of the brutality that Pennywise is going to bring, like, I mean, I'm, 
page 159 you find out about the lumberjacks and how like one of their like penises are like found nailed to the wall of the yeah, cabin it's i just had like, like these, all of those highlighted the mushroom guy the ironworks exploding uh right. it's just it's just awful yeah i mean it, like the, the historical horror for me because it's only it's so laid out plainly for your imagination is the stuff that really stuck with me um that the severed head in the tree was also for me the scariest part of the new adaptation and i had almost forgotten that it's actually in the book ditto yeah. um, I, I mentioned yeah. the same thing like I, like I turned to my girlfriend i was just like i cannot believe that they actually pulled this for the movie like it's such a small little detail but they actually carried it into the movie i i, I thought that was just a scare for the film and, oh, it, was, no, and, yeah. and it actually yeah, is yeah. something that's in there which is so cool um, I also thought just like Tom beating on Bev was really oh disturbing. yeah well, well there's something also really unnerving for me just it felt very dreamlike that whole sequence because she leaves and doesn't have anything she has no shoes she has no wallet she has nothing and yeah, how's she getting anywhere it felt like almost like a lucid dream and for me that was just that was kind of terrifying and and also knowing that if it was a Anytime uh, during a, a, a chilly season in, in Chicago, it'd also be kind of scary because you, you, you get frostbite. Very true. You get frostbite. Or um, even that last line when Bill um, leaves Audra, she says, "And when do I see you again?" She asks softly. He put an arm around her and held her tightly, but never answered the question. Mm-hmm. And I, I just that that always left left a little eerie <laughs> tinge tinge to things at the very end there. Yeah, even the like the passage you read with Hanlon, where he talks about how he hears stuff in the library, is creepy too. Yeah, yeah. Um, it makes me wonder if like they had really kind of embellished that idea for um, it the, the movie for last year, because that's I mean, for me that's the scariest scene in the entire uh, movie is like everything with Ben in that one sequence, especially when you see the librarian just staring in the background. Like, I right? I totally agree. Totally, it's agree. so scary. Yeah. Adrian Mellon for me, seems a little bit more unnerving than the Georgie stuff just because having all these accounts and nobody believing that's a, that's really creepy. Fucking and I, that's why I love, um, I think it's on page 39 um, when at the end of that trial where they're like, no, not a, a clown was never mentioned. Yeah. And you have like all of these, these kids, you know, even the people that committed or well, they didn't commit, I mean, they, you know, the ones that threw them over, mm-hmm. everyone saw this clown. Yeah. But, but somehow it's erased from mm-hmm. the record, you know, and it's mm-hmm. just, that is so scary. Well, so emblematic of the town itself. Yeah. Especially oh, yeah, when you start. I thought hearing. it was very scary just taking him to see the graffiti that was eon, like that was like so worse than anything else. Like just showing him like how dangerous it was to live there. Yeah because the graffiti is so murderous and him being like you doing you see like this is this is a really fucked up i thought that was that was scary the insistence upon the evil in this town is just so laid out in such a well designed manner um that i i just have to praise that for sure and that could easily cross over uh into our next section which is the word processor of the god and we're gonna make a new rule whenever i'm in here you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? I read some of my favorite passages already. I kind of included them in, mm-hmm. in Cemetery and things like that. Um, did anyone have, have anything specific that they wanted to read? Yes. There was one section that I really love 
and it's at the end of the first chapter. It's so king, and it's so... Stuff that you don't ever really think about, the details in the story, but that the things that continue to go on, it's, it has to do with the sailboat. Somewhere below in the storm drain that was already filled nearly to capacity with runoff, there could have been no one down there. The county sheriff would later explain to a dairy news reporter with a frustrated fury so great it was almost agony. Hercules himself would have been swept away in a driving current. George's newspaper boat shot onward through nighted chambers and long concrete hallways that roared and chimed with water. For a while, it ran neck-neck with a dead chicken that floated with its yellowy reptilian toes pointed at the dripping ceiling. Then, at some junction east of the town, the chicken was swept off to the left while George's boat went in straight. An hour later, while George's mother was being disedated in the emergency room at Derry Home Hospital and while stuttering Bill was sat stunned and white and silent in his bed, listening to his father sob hoarsely in the parlor where his mother had been playing for release when George went out. The boat shot out through a concrete loophole like a bullet exiting the muzzle of a gun and ran at speed down a sluiceway and into an unnamed stream. When it joined the boiling, swollen Pembascot River, 20 minutes later, the first rifts of blue had begun to show in the sky overhead. The storm was over. The boat dipped and swayed and sometimes took on water, but it did not sink. The two brothers had waterproofed it well. I do not know where it finally fetched up, if it ever did. Perhaps it reached the sea and sails there forever, like a magic boat in a fairy tale. All I know is that it was still afloat and still running on the breast of the flood when it passed the incorporated town limits of Derry, Maine, and there it passes out of this tale forever. Kind of reminds me of the deer sequence in the body. Yeah. That felt like, you know, the innocence that just like finally seeping away, because that's the last connection that Bill has with his brother. And for it to get away, go through all these awful the most disgusting parts of dairy and then to finally maybe get out there. It's like that's it's like almost like Bill's hope in a way, mm-hmm. personified and characterized by like the the boat itself. And I don't know, I just thought that was really beautiful. And it's really early on. I mean it's like the ending yeah. of the first chapter. Yeah. Um, uh, that, was, nice. that was uh, who's talking though, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it was kind of funny it, I know it came up earlier when we were talking about the conflicting perspectives, which I do agree with Mel. Uh, but I did write that down as just like an indig- in, that was the exact passage I had flagged as being like a really strong individual piece of writing even though we don't know who the, who the hell well, it's is. especially is especially galling to me because he's like i know exactly what route this boat took but not but only up to a point and i'm like where the fuck are you that you yeah. know that it went this far but like <laughs> you couldn't us. follow it any further well it was clive it was clive barker on a fishing boat outside maine oh, he's like well there's that goes and then i have a no. somewhat relevant passage um that mm-hmm. comes from georgie going to the cellar um, on page seven of the Scribner, it says the sound of the piano came from what his father called the living room and what his mother called the parlor. It sounded like music from another world far away, the way talk and laughter on a summer crowded beach must sound to an exhausted swimmer who struggles with the undertow. And I just I love anytime King highlights the minutia that you become aware of when you're in a what you perceive to be a life threatening situation. There yeah. was a lot of it in Cujo. We talked about it at length right. about how you can think of the milk that you left on the counter when you're in a car being besieged by a dog that's going to kill you. I just think that's mm-hmm. incredibly true to life. And he put, he, he puts it down on the page. Like no other writer does that just like surreal moment of like, Oh, at this moment when I'm about to die, I can think of this crazy random th- shit. I got a great tweet. Uh, that's what Bill says on page one thirty. This would be a great tweet right now. If fiction and politics ever really do become interchangeable, I'm going to kill myself because I won't know what else to do. You see, politics always change. Stories never do. 
Uh, Got him. Love it. Love it. I love that <laughs> line, especially in an age in which everyone is so obsessed with welding ideology and treating that as more important than narrative and anything else. I just, I don't know. It felt like a hit home right now for me. So cool. love that section. But, uh, um, any, any any other section? Any other stuff, guys? No other golden text. The entire section of the the first the first Mike interlude about a town being haunted. I won't read it, but I just think the, yeah. the bit that ends with "What's feeding in dairy? What's mm-hmm. feeding on dairy? A feeding place for animals" is is great. I love it. I love that whole. Yeah, that I whole held bit. myself back because I wanted to read that too, but uh, uh, our readers have already read the book, so, so no no point there. Just <laughs> they know, know what we're the talking interlude. about. That is a great section. I'm looking forward to that second interlude. Um, <laughs> But you know what? I'm also kind of looking forward to some sweets. We've been sitting in this room yeah. for a while, Mac. I'm hungry. I don't know, but I don't know about you all, uh, Mel. Caffrey. Yeah, my blood sugar is low. I, I can't eat hey, some. I, I always want some sweets. <laughs> oh, I know you do. And that's where we're going to get some in a section we like to call Pound Cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in Bad Mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. Okay. All right. Where are we start? Can I start? <laughs> Go for it. Go. Page 22. <laughs> they said, nobody suggested that he sucked the root. Nobody. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> love it. I've got one on uh, page 46 of the first edition. It, it is, you know, I don't know if this is like bad writing per se but i just think it's kind of funny it's about yeah. stan and his wife and their sex life mm, okay, yeah so um oh i think i know what this patty, is <laughs> patty iris had gone to her marriage bed a virgin she'd slipped naked between cool sheets at a resort hotel in the poconos her mood turbulent and stormy lightning flares of wanting and delicious lust <laughs> side note i think anytime we use the word delicious like as an adjective it's always funny dark clouds of fright when Stanley slid into bed beside her, ropey with muscle, his penis an exclamation point rising from gingery pubic hair, she had whispered, don't hurt me, dear. I actually think that's kind of a sweet sex scene. But I, it I, is, I, but the exclamation like, why, point. Why the dick? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's the gingery pubic hair I think is really, really, really funny. Yeah. And the, ex- the, like, the penis rising like an ex- exclamation point. I don't know why. You always, it's always it. like one turn of phrase where you're like, oh, this is a sweet sex scene. And then it's like, but why did you do that? Like yeah, there's yeah. a moment later where he like, he like mounts her. And I'm like, that's just, just don't use that verb. Like, just don't use it. Is it, is it, it or one of the other recent books we've read where they, they talk about like a couple lovingly referring to someone's pubic hair as their thatch. Like the thatch. Oh, I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> never, book. never forget the rock of the ages or the snake. <laughs> it was like really long. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> Uh, pay, uh, I, I have another one, not a specific one. I just wrote page one hundred six. Tom's views on the female body. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Awful. I, mean, I, I can't even read them all. It's another thing. It's like you're indulging too much here. I don't need this. I know he sucks. Like yeah. Something I, I actually did remember as a kid was like how Tom would was saying like. Oh, he hated that. You know, he hated how he would meet these like models, and he would bring them home, and he thought they would have big breasts, but their nipples were just like yeah. Is there something or like like the knobs on a dresser? But that's like, but not Bev, and it just goes like. It's so <laughs> got a great pair of tits. Is that's like basically keeps going. That's like the whole yeah. crux of their relationship. Yeah. Um, okay, speaking of tits. Stephen King is obsessed with portraying women's emotion through their nipples. It happens like five times in this section. And the one I had chosen was from page 43 with Patty remembering the 
the titter, the sudden tittering laughter, and her back would prickle, her nipples would go hard and hurtful, her hands would tighten on the bar of the shopping cart. And like, okay, fine. I guess he does it with testicles with men sometimes, but it mm. always feels just a little bit like it's supposed to tantalize rather than give you a view of the character. And he never does it with men's nipples. And I will tell you that they operate in the same way. Women's nipples are not more highly tied to their weird memories or emotions. When mm. it gets cold, your nipples get hard. That's it. <laughs> I like to believe they do. <laughs> he does, it, it is, but later on in the book, I won't spoil it here, but there is, there's something, there's a thing where they're all standing in a circle together as adults. And like, it's just funny to me when he ties sensations to like anatomical parts, just because it's hilarious to imagine someone like going in a grocery store, like, oh my God, my nipples are hard and hurtful. All of a sudden. It's just like very, it's just very sudden. And, and kind of, it's just, and that's not how it happens. I can tell you as the female member of this podcast, this is, this is a thing that he thinks and he doesn't know much about. I like how Tom, page 110, it's like his cock was stiffening in his pants, but he barely noticed that was for later. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I do love also Bill's... Uh, <laughs> description here of um, Audra uh, page 132 Scribner he says um, uh, they are in bed together during this conversation her breasts are small like peaches sweet like peaches <laughs> or, that's uh, not Audra that's friggin' sweet oh yeah who is oh wait who, wait is that not Audra like Susan or whatever is her name no it's his agent oh oh FYI um, having that's sex even, with Bev that's uh, when having sex with Bev, sliding into her was like sliding into some exquisite oil. <laughs> exquisite um, oil. Let's talk about poop on page 85. Um, <laughs> here nearby is KO Pectate, Pepto-Bismol Preparation H, in case the mail moves too fast or too painfully. Also some tucks in a screw top jar, just to keep everything tidy after the mail has gone through. Be it just an advertising circular, <laughs> or two addressed to occupant, or a big old special delivery package. <laughs> <laughs> Loves that metaphor. Oh, oh should we go through all the... It's just that in case of like, just stop like two sentences earlier and you'll be fine. You know, you don't, yeah. don't need five descriptions of shit. Do do we want to go through all the, the descriptions from Myra or do we go enough at that? I, we set our piece on We've that, set our piece on Myra. We're going to leave Myra behind? Okay. Yeah, okay. she's in the dust. All right, yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, that's uh, all. I that's all I Myra. had. Did you? Uh, did you have? You can pick your favorite one, Mike. One? <laughs> you really want to <laughs> contribute that? Hmm. Let me think. Let me think. Or uh, just like, oh, we already did the hog thing. That's the. I was best gonna say part. just like it. Think of the worst thing you could say about a, a, a larger true. woman. No, I think Myra the hog <laughs> takes the, the takes thing. the cake. Literally yeah. and metaphorically. But um, uh, uh, I just added my own. I guess. That was, well, I guess I'm, that was I'm, unfortunate. I'm done with my uh, slice of pound cake. What about you? Th- what about you, Fury? I'm very full. There's plenty more pound cake to come in the weeks ahead. Uh, this is just a, an, an aperitif of pound cake. That's true. And, you know, I, I think we ate it a little too fast because uh, we've been cooped up for so long. But it's time to hit the road and go to the expansive horizons of King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. I only have a couple. I'm gonna let others take it though if they have something, and then I'll chime in if I if I don't. But I have one that yeah. I'm kind of excited about. Um, yeah. Ooh. I don't know if it's a cheat, but you you tell me. On page okay. 32, um, Haggerty could hear thudding blows and the sound of his lover screaming. Adrian sounded like a rabbit in a snare. He told the police. Okay. 
King loves Watership Down. It's also my favorite book of all time. And he mentions Watership Down in a lot of his books. Um, he might even mention it later on in here. I'm not sure. Mm. But there is a, a point at Watership Down, and I think he actually mentions the specific point in the book in another book of his. I don't know which one it is. Um, there's a part of Watership Down where the rabbits encounter a happy community of other rabbits. And every so often... Um, one of those rabbits will die in a snare because the entire field has been snared, but none of the rabbits talk about it. They've been made complacent because the farmer gives them vegetables mm. and they just live in this, basically a town where they are picked off, but nobody can talk about it. And you can't Ooh. ever ask where anyone went um, if they disappear. And I think it's incredibly purposeful, that rabbit in a snare line. Yeah, that's like well, such that a creepy allusion to. Yeah. It ties to Derry. And then we have that scene in Watership Down where Big Wig does get in the snare, and it's like super freaky. The yes. movie, in the movie, it's freaky as well. That, that's a good one, though. What, what about you, Dan? Um, in this one, not so much. I mean, just it's funny because there's the mentions of the turtle, but then I'm like, I think it is the first book where the turtle is prevalent, right? I, we don't uh, know so far, so far, at, yeah. At this point. So that was the only thing I flagged, but it, but also then I'm like, wait, I, contextually, I don't think this would have been familiar to anyone at, at who you know at the time, like if they read it right when it came mm -hmm. out. So I don't know. If I I did not have anything. Stuff in later chapters, yes, but or later sections, mm -hmm. yes, but not this time around. What about you, Mac? Um, I, well, I've got a couple, but you Mike, go for you it. Have, okay, uh, page thirty nine. They talk about how Stephen Dubay is sentenced to Shawshank. Mm. Mm hmm. Page, uh, yeah, page yeah. seventy-two. That's a prison from uh, uh, different seasons. That's true. Page seventy-two. Ben is living in Hemingford home. Yeah, Nebraska. Ah, yeah. shit, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah we had said he lived in Texas. Then we corrected ourselves and said Nebraska. But yeah, but yeah, Hemingford. Home. Mother Abigail's uh, wandering around over there, or <laughs> the children of the corn. That's true because they do also mention Gatlin mm -hmm. in that same section. Yeah. Do you think you got a drink with uh, the kids from the corn? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think what he's if, drinking if, wherever wherever he can get him, Mike. That's true because he is <laughs> Ben the Bottle yeah. Handsome. Um, that that children's show they're 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 doing the spinoff children's show Ricky Lee and the kids from the corn. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You know, goddamn kids. What if, what <laughs> yeah, how do they do it? Assignment. What's your next assignment, Ben? He's like, well, there's a there's a young church group that wants me to build a new steeple for them. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that's that's all the ones I had um on there there was a, a point where they talk about cujo but um i just dreamed that up well i'm gonna hijack the pod now and take us to a subcategory called things we glean along the beam and uh this beam is a uh, path of the matterin <laughs> the turtle or maturin how how do we pronounce in that matterin Maturin. I say Maturin. 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 Maturu. Uh, I don't know. I'm just making things Maturin. up. Maturin. Uh, but let me run down these real quick. And if you guys have any other ones. Now, I think it's interesting because people that have maybe read this for the first time might not have picked up on these until, because, you know, they don't really mention the turtle to no. the very end. So, page eight, uh, we already mentioned George lingers on the, the can of turtle wax. Mm -hmm. Page nine, again. That turtle, George thought, uh, going to the counter drawer where the matches were kept. Where did I see a turtle like that before? Page 45. The turtle couldn't help us, Stan says randomly, which is really random. Yeah, it's totally uh, random. And then, and then right, near, right after that, page 57, Stan's wife thinks, I would call the turtle, but mm -hmm. the turtle couldn't help us. I'm like, how did this stuff not stick out like a sore thumb? But it, it goes away for hundreds of pages sometimes, so it's yeah. like easy to forget. And then page 148, 
think this is Mike talking. Yeah. Uh, or maybe this is the voice of the turtle. Yes. I rather think it was that. I know it's what Bill Denbro would would believe. Uh, and that's when in reference to why Mike was waking up from some kind of sleep because it was back. Uh, and I had another question. Since Al Pacino exists in this world, mm-hmm. are we on the path of the turtle? Oh, we could be. Mm. I hope we are. Probably. I'd like to. I'd like to be at the turtle because I like turtles, and I saw two turtles yesterday. Actually, I saw three. Aw, turtles! Oh, Chicago. Good. Yeah, they were. Uh, they were at the uh, Lincoln Park Zoo. Oh the, yeah. Yeah, nice. they're they're fun. There's they're a all uh, oh, there's a turtle pond on UT's campus that I always love to to walk by, and um, they're, they're such peaceful creatures, and I never get tired of seeing them. I love turtles. <laughs> now turtle. it's time for uh, Ooh, Ernest Leonardo. Turtle Talk with Dan. <laughs> no, I love I love turtle talk. Quick though, uh, Mac favorite Ninja Turtle Leonardo, Mel Splinter. That's not, it doesn't count. <laughs> Splinter's a rat. Splinter's a rat. He's a rat. He's you a have to choose rat. between the four turtles. We have the, you have the I options. I can't even tell them apart. Like, what? You have the options of Donatello, they each have different, different Raphael, weapons. Leonardo, and who am I missing? I don't know. The purple one. Michelangelo. Like, you like Donatello. Okay. I feel like Mel would like Donatello. What, what, about, what about you, Dan? Raphael. Uh, that's who I was picking, but I well, guess. you guys are so cool. I do like Donatello also, but Raphael's cool because he has an attitude and he doesn't take shit from anyone. Yeah, well, you know, he falls <laughs> through windows and stuff. Uh, page 71 that this is a King's Dominion when Richie's remembering things and he says, but sometimes those things come back. Oh, yes, indeed, they come back. Sometimes they come back. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. it is. Oh, it has to be, right? He's a huge fan of that short story. And maybe even the movie was starring Tim I've Matheson. also got, it's not really King's Dominion, but it's a really fun shout out that he mentions on page 129, Dennis Etchison, who wrote the uh he's a fan who's i guess a horror writer and he's also a fan of him it's funny because it also ties into our halloweenies podcast because dennis Essison wrote some of the novelizations uh also uh, yeah all you constant listeners because uh, i've been actually looking for dennis etchison's uh, short story collection dark country for a couple of years now and it's very hard to find so if any of you have any hot tips on where to find it let me know my boy uh, tim vargulish he's very good at finding uh rare books so tim if you're listening Help old cast Brad Caffrey out. <laughs> anyway, is that a wrap on uh, Matern? Uh, that's a wrap on that old Path of the Turtle. All right. Well, it's time to go back to the, oh, my God, we're out of categories for now. You know why? Because this is not the end of the book. This is the very beginning. It's our namesake. You know, it's our namesake book. We have to devote the, the right amount of time to it. And there's a lot to talk because clearly we, we've only are 170 pages in and this is already a three and a half to four hour conversation. I only imagine the next episode. Most of the next couple episodes will probably focus on Ben's rampant alcoholism. It's true. Thank you for admitting that. (laughs) The first chapter in the next episode, which is going to be focusing on part two, June of 1958 is called Ben Hanscom takes a fall. And me, me thinks this isn't about alcoholism. So (laughs) stick around. And if you enjoy what you're listening to, and I would hope so, considering this has been a long time and it's been a journey, please rate and review us on iTunes, Pod, Chaser, Stitcher. I don't usually do this section of the podcast, so I don't have them all listed. But if whatever you're listening on, give us a nice review. We appreciate them. And uh, stick around and follow us on our social networks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm particularly partial to Instagram. Uh, Find some great people on there. Love the gram. Love the gram. Uh, Love the Heather gram. No no political arguments. I love it. I do too. It's just photos. And I'm a a guy who needs some images, which is what makes it so hard for these Stephen King books sometimes. That's why I love Cycle of the Werewolf so much. So much much imagery. Anyways. Like just pictures. Baby Rothman. (laughs) Thank you, you all, 
for having this fun little journey with us. We're going to continue our trek across the beam, under the beam, around the beam, eh, whatever. Pretty much all over that beam. All over the beam. We're going to be staying around in Derry. We're, uh, we're over here at the, uh, at the uh, bed and breakfast, and we're going to go get some dinner right now over at uh, the Jade. <laughs> we'll see you next week with part two. We're going back to 1958. In the meantime... Long Long days days and and pleasant pleasant nights. Nights. See you soon. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This has been a bloody disgusting show. Thanks for tuning in. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>